Hello, hello. This is Tom Arnish of Arnish Models, interrupting this great podcast for an annoying ad again. If you need high-precision tools, 3D models, decals or resin parts for hyper-detailing, and I'm sure you do, then just visit my webshop www.anish.io A-N-Y-Z dot I-O Low-priced worldwide shipping and even free shipping for many countries available. And believe it or not, all orders above 50 euros qualify for a free decal sheet of your choice. So, hurry up! See you on the interwebs on anish.io Friends, the show you're about to hear may contain coarse language, progressive attitudes about scale modeling, and in-depth discussion of technique and concept. If this is not your thing, then on your bike. Otherwise, please enjoy today's show while at the bench, on the drive to work, or while enjoying an adult beverage. I need a comfort break. I don't know if anyone else need a break. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could, I'll, I'll do one as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Might, as, yeah might as well. So, so I can tell you this now. There was an old ski instructor, and I was went to the bathroom, and he was next to me in the next urinal. And he looked at me, and he goes, you know, I'll give you a bit of advice. He says, there's two things you never pass up. One, when you get to R8, you never pass up the chance to go to the toilet. He said, secondly, never pass up an erection, even if you're on your own. <laughs> That's the cold open. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Welcome everyone to episode 44 of the Sprue Cutters Union podcast. I'm Chris Meddings. Again, you've got me again, you poor fuckers. With me, I have Will Patterson. What's up? And Tracy Hancock. Hello. I was trying to think of Tracy something funny Hancock, and I couldn't think of anything. Have Tracy meow Hancock. Yeah, and we have, we, have, we have Ninja as well. She just came in and announced her presence. Well, why not? Let's just add loads of hosts to the podcast because the more the merrier. Right? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so coming up later, we got an amazing interview, uh, and like we like to, it gets really uh, deep and heavy at one point with Martin Drayton, the fantastic diorama artist, champion snowboarder, and all round amazing guy who's far too good looking for his own good. Ridiculously handsome and charming. Yeah. It's like, why are you a model really maker again? Yeah, yeah. It's too nerdy for someone like me. And then we have, uh, before that, we've got our discussion, which we'll get to a bit later on in the show. And we've got a bumper box of burrs this week. So <laughs> a, get ready for yes, the hate. It is, a, it, is, it is a basket full. So if, like us, you like moaning, get ready because <laughs> you're going to be in fucking hog heaven. So uh, before we do that, let's quickly go through what we've been up to this week. Tracy, what have you been up to? Um, I have been working a lot. Um, I will go to work after we get finished here for my ninth day in a row. And then I've got a couple of days off. Uh, model making stuff. I have been, um, Chris asked before we started recording about the A-Wing. The A-Wing is painted and put aside so that whenever I get some downtime in between 
projects or waiting for things to arrive in the mail. I've got something I can pull off the shelf and, and weather. My uh, reflector set arrived for the scimitar, so I've got those mounted on the mud flaps, got the mud flaps mounted, got everything sort of weathered in, took the photos of that. So now it's figures and a base for that one. Um, and that's pretty much it. Good. Short and sweet. Just been too busy to do much of anything, really. Yeah. I guess we'll have a lot more to talk about next time. Yeah. Well, I'd also like to, because I'm... Um, I am in the middle of a, uh, I think I'm on day two of a 10-day ban on Facebook um, because apparently I liked things too quickly and that <laughs> and that seems suspicious to Facebook, so they've restricted my account. So I would like to thank everyone for all the nice birthday wishes. Um, part of the reason I think that I got my restriction on Facebook was liking all the Facebook posts, wishing me a happy birthday too quickly. <laughs> The birthday thing that Facebook puts on so that people can wish you happy yeah, birthday. Yeah, but you remember when we posted the album of stuff from World Model Expo a few years back, there was someone, and I can't remember who it was, who got uh, a Facebook restriction because they essentially liked the post too quickly. As they scrolled through, they were just hitting like on everything, and mm. Facebook was like, hey, that's suspicious. So that's where I You stopped that. Yeah. Yeah. You stop using Facebook for what we designed Facebook for and made it so easy for you to do. Stop using the features we push you to use. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, uh, since I can't comment or uh, react to anything on Facebook, I would like to take – and by the time this goes out, I still won't be able to for a couple of days. just like to thank everybody for the birthday wishes. It was very nice. Um, Some very nice things were said, and I'm really uh, really – Pleased to be reminded of how many people uh, appreciate me uh, and seem to, to like me a little bit. So we appreciate well, you, and we like we like you a little bit. Yeah, that's all you can ask for. <laughs> Which little bit do you like? <laughs> Hopefully, not oh, the same little off. bit my wife likes. They say they say that in life that a third of people like you, a third of people don't like you, and a third of people just don't give a shit. So. I'm going to leave it to you to decide which of the two of us is which. <laughs> I pretty much only use Facebook for pushing the two extremes to 50% and <laughs> the bit in the middle. <laughs> Forget it. Well, what have you been up to? Well, my life has been a bit disjointed for the last 10 days. Um, I, uh, you know, bench wise, I was kind of getting some momentum back. I had been in a little bit of a, of a funk and I was, enthusiastically going at the little Arma Hobby PZL kit that I talked about on the, wait a minute, wait a minute, I've misspoken already. I was uh, enthusiastically going at the little PZL kit set that um, (laughs) I was given by Greg at Arma when he sent me some other kit sets while I was working on the Arma Hobby 172nd scale Mustang kit set, which is a great kit set, by the way. And the PZL kit set is also a wonderful little kit set. And, um, you know, it's got a couple of engineering issues with the cockpit. It's, you know, it's one of those cockpits that's mostly made out of tubes instead of actual sidewalls. And that's one of those deals where you really have to get the engineering right. And, uh, you know, sorry, Greg, but with this kit set, 
Yeah, the engineering is a little sketch. It 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 should it's one of those things that you should be able to dry fit, and you just can't. And uh, every kit set that's been my favorite kit set in the history of kit sets has uh, included parts that can be dry fit. I think that's the mark of really good engineering. And so in a premature uh, burrage of my long list of burrs this week, one of my burrs is kit sets that don't allow you to dry fit. Um, I think that's, uh, that that's an important thing, and it's a sign of really good engineering. And also, obviously, in my list of burrs this week is the word kit set. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Kotare, because now we are going to have a bunch of dudes who are trying to sound smart using a word that is basically meaningless in an effort to be cooler than the rest of us. And I told somebody the other day that kit set is going to be the new hairy stick. <laughs> And yes, you can clearly hear how ridiculous it is when you actually use it in sentences. Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> we'll do the birds a bit later because we could go off on that one. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, that's that's been my disjointed life and my <laughs> and my pile of frustrations that have been building over the last week because I also spent most of last week with a bad case of the throat clap and that cost me most of the week. I didn't feel like working at the bench. I had a fever. It was just not a good week. So I really don't have much to say about anything I've actually been up to. I just have lots to bitch about <laughs> more than usual. <laughs> good. What about you, Chris? Let the hate flow through. <laughs> um, I, you remember like last time I spoke about how I wanted to change what I was doing. Before I can do that, though, I need to tidy up loads of like fucking odds and ends and shit. So that's basically what I've been doing. I need to finish the A20 and um, I needed a new canopy for it because the windscreen had a bubble inside the plastic. So uh, people may recall it's a test shot. Hong Kong model sent me a new canopy and that's great. It was perfect. And then I made up some masks, which you can now buy in my store inside the armor.com. A full set of masks for the windows and uh, canopy and all of that, and the lights, position lights, and everything underneath as well, and the, the um, lights, uh, the windows, and the fuselage. And they they were they're great. They uh, because the because um, it's such a big canopy, uh, vinyl masks work really well on it. If it was a smaller one, sometimes getting them over the corners can be a bit of a bitch, but it's fine on a, a big one like that. So, and then I painted it green with. Um, called sms paints uh us olive drab and i ran out of paint just before i was like 99 percent of it and ran out of paint but that's fine because i sprayed it when it was too warm and probably with too much air and i got quite a dusty finish so i've sanded it down and got it nice and smooth and it's still mostly okay but it just needs a touch up here and there where the paint where it went through to the primer so uh yeah i'll do that then you know maybe I wish if, maybe if you to... controlled your air pressure a little <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah no totally yeah it was totally my fault but uh, I'll tell you what the problem I hadn't cleaned the airbrush enough and I, I whacked up the pressure to get the paint flowing and uh, you know the typical lazy lazy bitch gives you problems well in all problems. seriousness you did say it was lacquer right and you said you got the, the little nubblies the dusting the gravel yeah it basically was drying before it hits were the you monster. spraying into a corner even when I wasn't ah. but it's because it was it was um it was quite hot and dry that day as well. So it's hot you know, and dry I think the where two I spray together. all the time. Well, 
Yeah, but in combination with too much pressure, way too much pressure. Yeah, yeah that, that you know, the, the little sure. particles are flying faster, so they're drying faster, yeah. I guess. But uh, yeah, and also in combination with the fact it doesn't fit in the spray booth, so probably I'll spray it from further away than I might normally. Mm, that'll be, so, that's probably you know, the main thing right there. When I do the next coat, I'm going to cut it with Mister Leveling Thinner, and just do a thin, couple of thin coats over the top, thin wet coats, and that should level it all out nicely. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's not the paint's fault, it's my fault. And also when I sprayed the Mr. Surface it was probably the same problem. So there we go. That's what I done did. That's about it really. Uh and I've got loads of other things I'm sort of tinkering with and not doing anything, so it's not been a great week. I did go to Warhammer Fest weekend before last, which is the um it's like a Depticon in the US, but the UK one. And it's War uh, it's Games Workshop's own sort of uh model show. And it's not like you would normally, uh, the kind of model shows we go to, the only vendors there are people that have a license from Games Workshop to sell their, to to, um, do video games and stuff like that. And Games Workshop had a store there. But the Golden Demon was there. So I got to see some really great fantasy miniatures, some really good uh, sci-fi stuff. And I had a great time with my son. So that's it. That's what I've been up to because we went together. Awesome. That sounds like good stuff. Yeah, it was good fun. I mean, I'll be honest, it could learn a lot from shows like SMC. They could let other people in who uh, who sell their products even just to provide a bit of variety in the vendors. And also um, it was all pointed towards selling and they could get some other activities going on that might make it a bit more interesting for people once they're there. But, you know, it was pretty good and it was great to see such great models. I think a lot of what people get out of it is they see their mates there because we don't really know anyone, the two of us, you know, because we just play together and stuff like that and paint together. Then... Um, we didn't really get that, whereas a lot of the other people go in. That's what they went for, really. <clears throat> cool. But, you know, go next year. We're, we're both up for it, so there we go. Nice. Good stuff. Good stuff. We got any letters? Yeah, well, not so many, but we. Uh, what we have had is a lot of really positive comments about last show's interview with Katari. People absolutely loved it, and a lot of people um, tagging us in posts, saying that because of us, they've been and bought the Spitfire. So, Richard, I expect our commission uh, before the next <laughs> show. Uh, check payable to uh, Spruikers Union. Um, no, it's really glad people got a lot. I think what people got out of it was hearing them talk about all the effort they put into the kit. There's a lot of subtleties people didn't maybe pick up on just from looking at it online, and I think that's really sold it. And I think that's a really good example of why more people, manufacturers, should come on shows like this and talk about what they do. Yeah, they certainly got cerebral about the design process and and really kind of explained sort of how in-depth they think about things and you know the fact that they're yeah it's it was it was really good i I was impressed by the fact that they design it one one and shrink it down yeah it's highly unusual yeah there, there were quite a few things in that interview even though i wasn't part of the interview i did get to listen to it before it went out um and yeah it was it was a really great conversation so I'm really happy that we're getting that feedback too. Um, I feel like, you know, people are tagging us when reality, we didn't do much. We, we just kind of let them talk. Oop. We just hosted them. Yeah. Although not, I'm not going to say that because Will did a great job with the technical questions. It kind of led into some of those answers too. Well, thanks for that. I mean, look, it was, it was easy and fun because those guys are, are interesting and what they're doing is really cool. And, um, I am totally gratified that 
people seem to like that interview. And look, I hope it does drive sales. They deserve that. I mean, I feel like that that they should be rewarded for their effort and their attention to detail. So, absolutely. I mean, and look, I'm I I have thought quite a bit myself over the last few weeks about how I can justify yet another Spitfire. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's N plus one. Yep. Yep. There's a training. Apparently there were some that went to a training squadron and there's one that has a red, white, and blue striped nose that's out there. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, cause I just don't want to do the same old, same old dark earth and, you know, uh, RAF green. Anyway, I'm I'm thinking about it. We did have another letter uh, from Narin Ganesh. It's a really good letter. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's a couple yeah. things in there that caught my attention. And he writes, "Hi team, I'm a new convert to your excellent podcast, having only become aware of it very recently due to Will's interview on on the bench. Great interview, by the way, guys. Go and check it out." Uh, I've been a modeler all my life, but like many, I had a break whilst life took over and only came back to it in earnest in 2016 when I decided to build the Tamiya 120th scale Ferrari F310B F1 that my wife bought me as a Christmas present 10 years earlier. I had no idea how the hobby had moved on. Photo etch just didn't exist back in the day, neither did resin. The sheer variety of paints is astonishing. Yeah, no shit, there's a new one every week. It was only humble enamels when I was a lad. I even took the plunge and bought an airbrush. I'm getting the hang of it, and when it works, it really works, but it takes a lot of practice, and I just wouldn't dream of brush painting anymore except for tiny details. Uh, anyhow, I listened to great interest to the efforts, guys, on your show recently. have been battling with the 172nd B17G on and off for a while. I wondered if you let them off a bit on the quality question. Every airfix I've built recently has some kind of fit issue, and the soft styrene they use is in marked contrast to Tamiya and Academy. The wings were warped, the fuselage would not close properly, the cockpit... Uh, wouldn't fit without copious sanding, and one of the undercarriage legs had not moulded correctly and broken away from the sprue. <laughs> mm. Luckily, I got some uh, scale aircraft conversions, sack white metal mm. replacements. Ouch. I would debate the word luckily there. Uh, I'm yeah, curious to if Airfix. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious to learn if Airfix look at the competition and whether they feel the need to up their game. Cost may be the reason, but I feel they can do better. I wish them well, and it's great to see the brand being successful again as I grew up with them. Which brings me to Ravel. You don't mention them much except to criticise their quality. I've always been frightened off for them as a result, but is this fair? Are their designers prepared to come on your show to face the music? Is it a case of passing off crap to an unsuspecting public while enthusiasts look elsewhere? Anyway, loving the show. Finding time to listen is a bit of a challenge. No, it's not. Just listen to us, not the others. But I'm learning so much more about this hobby than I ever dreamed I would. Really great to have you listening, Narin. Thank you. It's a, so, Will, I can hear you itching to answer. Well, it's this. a great letter. That's a great letter. And and look, I would love to have Ravel come on here. I mean, I, I look, I, I I've said it before. I think it would be great if we had uh, you know a a kit manufacturer every month, and Ravel deserves the chance to defend themselves <laughs> just as much as anybody else does. And and they got some explaining to do. I'm just saying because they, I mean, look, they they have a reputation. I am still in therapy after building their 2014 tooling of the uh, Piper Super Cub, you know, which is a great little, you know, it's a great kit because it's a unique thing. I mean, there's not a lot of civilian aircraft and the Super Cub is an iconic American uh, wing thing, but it was a terrible kit. Terrible. 
and I will not equivocate on that on that answer. And they, you know, I used their their part of their Spitfire, their Mark II Spitfire that they tooled in like 2015 or 2016 mm-hmm. for a project, and it was not great, not great. It was very revelish, like one of the ailerons looked like a pretzel right out of the bag. Had to put it in hot water, straighten it out, that kind of thing. You know, so, yeah, it's a thing. But speaking of bad quality, okay. I have to say, though, before you move on for Rebel, the new Hurricane looks the dog's bollocks. It really looks good. Maybe. But, you know, you've got to put these things together. I mean, it's like their FW-190 of a couple of years ago. A lot of people said, oh, this thing looks great. But but there are quite a few builders who I know and respect for their level of attention to detail and their construction craftsmanship who said it was a shit show. Hmm. You know, so we'll see. We'll see. But speaking of, of hurricanes, which I rarely do unless it's derogatory, <laughs> Um, and our buddies at Arma, they announced that the long-awaited uh, 148th Hurricane is coming out. And I know lots of guys are going to be excited about that. And I understand. I get it. I mean, it's probably going to be a really good kit. And, you know, I'm a big fan of Arma, even though I will hold them to task for a few of their engineering decisions. I bet it's going to be great. And if Hurricanes weren't so <coughs> fucking ugly, <laughs> I would probably build one. But, you know. I prefer hurricanes to Spitfire. Yeah, but you're just you know you're a contrarian. Yeah, we we expect no, it's because this from you. The Spitfire is the glamour boy that gets all the attention, but it was the hurricane that did all the work for and, sure. And I like that sort of pre-war look. The Spitfire you know. is Margot Rob- Robbie, and the Hurricane is Susan Boyle. I mean, it's just like that. No, it's not Susan Boyle. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Going back to quality things from that letter, look, I really try to be fair. I know some people think I'm super hard on products, but um, you know there are really good products that people hardly ever complain about. Tamiya, MRP, pretty much anything from Mr. Hobby. People, you just don't see many complaints. And then Apart you know edge lords that are trying to say they're too easy. There's that, right? Um, <laughs> you know, and then there's products that that you'll see sometimes people will have an issue with that's rightfully deserved, but they're trying hard, and you know that, like Airfix. I mean, sometimes Airfix, you know, it's a little bit of a toss up. Sometimes Airfix is great, sometimes it's not so great, but at least we know that they're trying hard. Although they haven't got it dialed in yet. Uh, they're they're on the right road talking to them for what they were saying it's it's a direction of travel for them yeah i mean we know that they're putting a lot of effort in but then there are products that frankly are just garbage and we know they're garbage because of the sheer volume of complaints and in spite of the fanboys who say well you just must be using it wrong there objectively must be a problem vallejo Vallejo surface primer it, it's it's one of them. Um, it's not a primer. First yeah, it's 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 just terrible. And 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 there would you know where there's smoke, there's fire. And unfortunately for our buddy that sent us that great letter, scale aircraft conversions products are in that category. I mean, I've bought some and promptly threw them in the trash because unfortunately what those guys seem to do 
is take the kit part and do a a soft mold so that they can produce a, a, a white a soft white metal casting and not a good casting and the thing is white metal comes in a in a range of hardnesses from cold spaghetti to pretty durable and strong and the unfortunately the scalar craft conversion gear legs are on the raw spaghetti end of the of the spectrum they're they're weaker than the plastic parts however i don't know if there are any alternative replacement undercarriage for that kit well there may not be the one that came in the kit was unusable and he wanted to get it. but i don't know that they really are unusable and and here's the thing is well no he said i mean for what he said it wasn't it was broken and not formed properly. Yeah, but I just, you know, I kind of have to challenge that. And, I mean, you as a scratch builder should be right there with me because they're, you know, maybe there's just a different way to look at it. You know, maybe this is a point where you have to, you know, step up to the plate and learn some new skills to really get something that works. I know when I built the 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 Mitchells, uh, the accurate miniature Mitchells, the land, the nose gear is junk in that kit. I mean, the mold halves don't line up and e- didn't line up in either of the examples that I built. And it's and it's a fragile landing gear, fragile nose gear to start with. So for the first one, I bought the the scale aircraft conversions one. And that one is in my cabinet over there. And every now and then I still have to go straighten it because over time, even with the bare minimum weight of the nose of the Mitchell on it, it sags. And so for the second one that I built, I knew that. And so I didn't even try. I ended up combining the kit parts with some brass tubing and some other stuff. And I built my own landing gear. And I learned a lot by forcing myself not to compromise on product quality. And, you know, I'm not trying to make this a personal attack on scale aircraft conversions, but it is what it is. The products are terrible. And somebody needs to say it because... You know, people either need to quit throwing money at them or they need to, you know, they need to do something. Anyway, I have a a note here if we're if we're done with letters that actually came in while we were kind of doing the warm up. And when I saw who it was from, I I didn't even read it. I just decided to read it out loud. And so he he may be he may be about Russian roulette. Yeah, he may be about (laughs) to say some terrible things about us, but I don't think so. Um, This letter is from B.J. DeBecker and. You you guys know who he is. He he has a little shop. Panzer Concepts. Right, Panzer Concepts. And he does a lot of his own CAD design and 3D printing and just does really cool, cool stuff um, of, I think, I don't, you know, again, I don't know enough about the subjects, but I know he does a lot of stuff that's kind of esoteric. And he's an interesting guy that we should probably think about having on at some point. But here's his note. It says, um, you're d- regarding your decal question on the podcast, thank you for listening, BJ. Uh, he says this, because we were talking about, you know, how uh, you were, Chris was supposed to ask um, the guys that he interviewed, who was it about uh, decals? Decograph. Decograph. The Modest Feet Crane right, podcast, yeah. Right, about the uh, adhesive, the one thing he was supposed to do. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> he says... He says, the underlayment of gelatin acts as a binder and glue to hold the screen ink, meaning silk screening. Same principle as applying gold leaf on glass. 
As the gelatin dries, it shrinks, tightening, evaporating the decal slash gold and starts to lay flat. Too much gel and you get cracks and or that white film more due to impure gel. We've all seen that where you kind of get those whitish kind of stains around. Yeah, the decal. I should say though, Vitaly doesn't agree with why they crack. I'll get to that in a minute. Though. Okay, so uh, anyway, uh, smoother the surface, better the glow mirror finish on gold leaf. Hence the whole future myth. Thank you for that. You can do what we call scalding to make your decal slash gold brushing boiling water over. So the hot water thing, but not recommended for plastic models. Anyway, says join me for more useless tips and advice. Um, anyway, that's not a useless tip. I think that's good, interesting information. And like I said, you know, BJ's a smart guy. And so, you know, the key thing is that he said that it's gelatin. I, I guess, I mean, gelatin is gelatin right it's the com it's common in a lot of everyday products besides just Vitaly did say there was gelatin yeah. on the sheet to hold and yeah. i told you this in the show actually yeah to hold yeah, the decal on, the, on yeah. the sheet anyway i thought that was cool he said though the reason decals crack is because the uh lacquer is too old has gone off and he said that makes printers, yeah that makes sense to me yeah i don't know how true it is but he said some printers will use lacquer that's, that's either cheap or isn't or it's already gone off, it's past its shelf life. And that's why right. their decals aren't very good and they break up because um, he's very proud. He's got his own recipe for his lacquer and he's very proud of it. And uh, his, his lasts for a very long time, for much longer, he thinks, than other people's. But, then, you know, everyone always says their product's better for this and that reason and, and mm-hmm. whatnot. But it's the lacquer that, because as the lacquer shrinks, it cracks. And that, you know, just like if you used old lacquer paint, it would crack. And, you know. And lacquer's just like any other paint. There's quite a few different recipes and, and a slight addition or deletion of one thing or the other can completely change the way it behaves. That's it for letters. Thank you very much, BJ, for that one. And uh, thank you, Narin, and thank you everyone that wrote to us and commented on the posts. We really do appreciate you all listening. Uh, and certainly a lot of you did because the last episode was, uh, had the highest number of downloads in the first seven days of any show we'd done since we started, which Woo-hoo! is a record. That Martin used to hold uh, night shift. So Martin, you're gonna to have to come back on if you want to get your <laughs> yep, buddy. Time title to step back. back up to the plate. You've been called out. Gotta defend your title. <laughs> Let's have a quick ad break, and then we're gonna get into everyone's favorite segment: uh, the litany of hate that is birds under the saddle. <laughs> <laughs> From 1700 to 132nd, from armour to ships to aircraft, Tetra Model Works make the best PE on the market. High quality brass, precision etching and incredible design make it easy to work with and give superb results, elevating your models to new levels of detail. This month Tetra have released four new sets. In 135th they have the Coyote TSV Tactical Support Vehicle, a detail upset for Hobby Boss, and the M1278 Heavy Weapons Carrier General Purpose, JLTV GP, detail upset for the I Love Kit set. In 172nd, the Thad Thermal High Altitude Area Defense detail upset for Trumpeter, and the 172nd, M983 and MPQ 53 C band tracking radar detail upset also for Trumpeter. So, whether you build World War II, Allied or Axis, modern aviation or armor, or cruisers, destroyers, and carriers, Tetra have the set to make your model special. Do your model a favour and visit tetramodel.com today 
to buy the best brass around. Burrs under my saddle. Burrs rich in the butt. Burrs under my saddle. There's one wedged under my nut. All right, well, since you've got the, the, the burriest saddle, go Fuck, on, oh dear. It's like my whole saddle blanket is made of burrs right now because I've got at least three of them. And I'm hoping that one of them we can share because I know you guys were in on it and I think you agree. Strap in, folks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. this is yeah. going to be a, a triple-barreled uh, assault yeah. because we all we all have something to say about at least one of these birds, I know. Yeah, let me get the first two out of the way because they're fairly quick and straightforward. Okay, so the first one, and, and this is one where I really want us to post more pictures, because we already have, of Martin Witkowski's, hopefully I pronounced that right, Marson, I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, absolutely stunning F-18, 148 scale Ming F-18, that we have watched over the course of several years now, or no, maybe it's the Hasegawa, because I think he actually started it way before the Ming one even came out. Anyway, it's a masterclass in detailing and scratch building. Like the guy built, if you're familiar with the nose gear door on a Hornet, you know that it's kind of this structure that's got mesh in it so that the seawater can drain out of it and it's pretty complicated and none of the injection molded versions are really close to right he built his own from scratch out of brass um you know there's photo etch sets for it but he built his own it, it is an amazing bit of craftsmanship but it's also a beautiful bit of paint and weathering because he made that hornet just as fucking roached and grimy as hornets can get and the point of this because that's not the burr is that <laughs> you know i've said that there's a weathering bias against within ipms not some kind of conspiracy theory not some kind of directive but you know it's not really well addressed in the rules but it's just clear culture maybe it's just a cultural thing and i'm not just talking about judges i'm talking about as a whole as a membership and you can see it if you're looking objectively at the results anytime there's a photo dump from the nationals going and viewing it in person it, it, you know it, you walk down the aisles of aircraft and it's like not weathered, not weathered, not weathered, not weathered. Oh, there's some weathering, not weathered, not weathered. Not. It's like that. It's there. It is a thing. But I, I have operated under the assumption that uh, shows like SMC and Mawson, which we just had, Mawson, that, that they're above that. That that doesn't happen there. And <laughs> yeah, wrong. And I'm also now under the impression that Mawson is an IPMS show, actually. So maybe that's the explanation because, and I, I you know, I, I hope Marson doesn't think I'm talking out of school here because he showed me this stuff. And I was like, dude, this is ridiculous. 
And he didn't want to say anything about it because he's very gracious. His hornet got a bronze at Mossum. And he showed me the pictures of the other competitors that also got bronze because it's an open system show. And he showed me the competitors that got gold. There were no silvers. And I was kind of like, um, dude, what happened? Because we've seen your hornet come together. I know how beautiful it is. And I'm pretty sure you didn't make any of the standard mistakes that would cost you, you know. And it's gold, silver, bronze, right? And he was like, well, <laughs> as it happens, one of the judges sent me a, a note afterwards. And he showed me the note. It literally said, hey, we really enjoyed your construction and painting on your Hornet, but the weathering was too much. Literally. Those are the exact words verbatim. So my burr is two-part. The bias itself and the people who deny that there's a bias. Because, look, I mean, that's about as clear an example as you can get. Okay. I've got a burnout, which is... People that characterize a show when they've never been to the show. Because I hear this a lot on some podcasts. They talk all about the European shows and none of them have fucking been to one. And they don't know shit. They don't know what they're talking about. And, you know, I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying that because these people know what I'm talking about. But fuck it. If you haven't been, don't talk whack about a show you haven't been to. It's why I don't talk about the US Nationals and what's wrong with it. Because I've never been to the US Nationals. Anyway, uh, Mosin is not an anti-weathering show. It's not an IPMS show. It, it's really so. hard to get even a bronze there. To get a bronze. It, that and SMC are the two hardest to get an award at shows I've ever been to, by far. The, the, the standard there is higher than any other shows I've been to. Um, however, I do think there is an anti... The, 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 you've mentioned it before, and I'm sure you're going to agree with this. Aircraft modelers are a lot less uh, open to weathering than armor modelers. Yep. In fact, I think if you did a purely clean armor model at Mosin, it better be fucking brilliant if you expect to get anything because pretty much everything that scores is weathered. So, you know, because that's part of what they're looking at. That's part of what they, they expect to see is skill in that as well as the construction and everything else. But what I feel like I saw at Mosin was, first of all, it, it was... Um, unlike SMC, which is is heavily fantasy, and then mm. military diorama vehicle, and then not as much aircraft. At yeah. Mosin, there were all there's always a lot of aircraft, a lot of aircraft. It is a very heavy aircraft show, and it's basically aircraft and armor, isn't it? Diorama. Yeah, that's it. And the standard is incredibly high, but also you don't see clean models of aircraft at Mosin either. Like just about everything on the table's got some weathering to it, so and, there and that's there, why I, there could be something else going on. I it mean, might just be that judging team that year. Th yeah. There could be, there could be. I want to be fair about this because again, this is just this is just the based on a small snapshot of evidence that I saw. As opposed to like where I've sat down and gone through a thousand images of results from an I, from IPMS USA Nationals, all I saw were the photographs of this entire particular class. So maybe it was just that judging team. I don't know, um, but 
when you looked at the two gold winners, hardly any weathering. And so I'm not, you know, I want to be careful about ascribing motives or anything like that because we don't really know what was there. I mean, we all we all saw his model and it, it didn't look overweathered. I mean, Navy birds It was get, very get natural dirty. and very realistic. Yeah. yeah. And actually, it wasn't that. He could have gone a lot further with it. I've seen people could go have, a lot for sure. with a, with yeah. a hornet. I've seen yeah, them look sure. a lot dirtier. Could have. But, I just, I look, yeah, I just, I think thing. it's a topic that needs to be, I mean, look, that, that horse has been beaten to a pulp and I think it still has more to go. I really feel like that aircraft modelers are, and that's primarily it, is that aircraft modelers are just super conservative and you just need to stop. Stop that. Well, I'll also say for people who are interested in in weathered aircraft models, Mosin is probably the show that showcases that the best. Probably so, yeah. So it's it's worth if you're if you're an aircraft modeler and you do like grubby birds and grungy aircraft, then you should go and take a look at, at the entries in there. It's 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 a very high standard and a very high percentage of models that are weathered. Very high. And I want to make it clear, this is not me having a go at Mosin. Because I think that probably what happened is that this cultural bias, if you want to call it that, just happened to coalesce within this particular judging team, maybe. Mm. And so it's evidence that what I'm saying may be true about this sort of bias, but it is not an indictment of the Mosin show. And it's not even an indictment when it happens at IPMS Nationals, even though the evidence there is pretty overwhelming. It's again, it's more about the culture. Also, just to say about Mosin, um, it's if you're a ship modeler, uh, it's got more ship models and better made than any other show I've ever been to. It's definitely the show to go to if you like ships. Unfortunately, virtually no one took photos of the ships. From all the albums I've seen, everyone does the armor and the aircraft, and no one does the ships, and it's really annoying. It's too bad. So, yep. Yeah, some people did, though. Robert Blocker did a great album, for, just for me, I think. No, he didn't. So um, <laughs> <laughs> pop along to Robert's. We should have Rob on the show as well. He's a really great interview. Yeah, um, yeah he would be a good interview. Yeah, yeah he I interviewed him for cool the, stuff. Yeah, yeah, Models for Ukraine, and we had him on the um, the World Model Expo yeah. special for this show. Yeah. yeah, really good chats. This next one is, is really uh, timely because it just popped up a couple of days ago, and it fits right in with something that we've already talked about with the letter um, where I went on about scale aircraft conversions and aftermarket suppliers doing a terrible job. But this one goes even further because not only is this a shit product from a company that produces well-known shit products, but this is the the real burr here. I mean, look, it's the, the, the burr about shit products is an obvious one but it's the response okay so this cat in uh, smcg bought some resin intakes from gt resin and gt resin if you're an aircraft modeler you, you haven't heard about these guys that's you know 
probably just because you haven't been paying attention because they have a well-founded reputation for sending out garbage. And unfortunately, Sprue Brothers continues to carry their products. And honestly, I don't know why, especially after this. So what happened is, and you can see this very clearly in the pictures, this guy ordered some resin intakes for an F-16 conversion. And you can see these big globs of like white gunk spooge of some kind embedded in the parts. And the parts themselves are not very good. And that alone would have been bad enough. But there were other issues. Anyway, this guy, his name's Brian, he wrote a letter. Because the Sprue Brothers folks, unfortunately, have a history of telling people who complain about these products to contact the manufacturer directly. Which I also have a bit of a burr with that. Um, I really feel like that the distributor, the retailer should be the one to do that because they're the ones that have the most horsepower. And chances are that the supplier who's trying to sell you, Sprue Brothers, is not going to respond like this. This guy says, Thank you for your email. All of the intakes I make and are sold by Sprue Brothers are new as would be evidenced by the casting block being in place at the front of the intake. The removal of the casting block indicates the product is used. Now this guy had already very clearly told the dude that he had cut the casting block off, because that's what you do. The pictures that you sent me are of a used item damaged post-purchase. The damage to your intake is from a solvent or some contamination issue that is attacking the resin while handling or removing the casting block. The damage is not a product defect, and I must say that I am quite put off with your exaggeration and embellishment attempting to guilt me into sending you a replacement. I stand by my products 100% as I am a modeler first, and I make these items because no one else does, as a modeler, I warranty products even when the customer ruins it. I'm happy to do this for you in this case. So After I give you a lecture about how I don't want to. Yeah. I, I mean, what in the actual fuck? That is a textbook example of how not to respond to a customer that's got a problem. So, do you but, want me to tell you my method for dealing with things like this? Yeah. So I get the photo. I say, oh my God, I'm really sorry about that. I'm sending you a new one in the post right now. Please confirm your address. That's it. Yeah, exactly. Because that, even though that may cost you a little bit, that's a fuckload cheaper than what this guy is experiencing and is going to experience. Because, you know, you don't have people railing about you being an asshole on podcasts. I used to, sorry, I used to work in insurance and I was in sales. And they said to us, do you know what the most important department in the company is i said no it claims yeah because people never remember how something was sold to them but they sure as shit remember how you deal with it when there's a problem exactly exactly so brian responds to the response and says i removed and i'm reading this to illustrate because even though we don't have his original communication with with the guy i'm reading this because i think it's an illustration of brian's overall demeanor and level of politeness and shows that he didn't just go at this guy with, you motherfucker, you fucked me, you fucking fuck. It's not like that. He says, I removed the casting block myself with a razor saw in an attempt to begin to salvage your shoddy product. All right, that's pretty harsh, but at that point, he's pissed. I don't blame him. 
The damage on the intake was not my doing, but I appreciate you assuming I am attempting to guilt you into sending me a replacement. Solvent or cleaning was not the cause, nor was the customer ruining. And I have to say, yet solvent doesn't affect resin parts. I, Maybe there's some solvent out there, but you I mean, yeah, whatever it would affect might, would right. melt not your bench the typical or something. Things yeah. that exactly, <laughs> that we think of as solvent. Not things we use, yeah. Yeah, and, and so he then goes on to say, solvent also would not leave behind a clear yellowish bit of filler. The large yellow globs and missing material were present on the part when received. And and I want to, I, look, I really want to put pictures of these products up here so that people can see exactly what we're, what, what we're talking about. Because it, it's it's horrific, and this is I know the guy's what the yellowish shit probably is. This is the guy's response to that. Chunks of mold. Says, oh yeah, cool, cool. Yeah, and people have said that in this thread that they have gotten products from this guy where there were chunks of mold embedded in the oh, parts. Yeah, yeah. Usually pink when it is. So this guy goes on. I guess this would be your response. Any reasonable modeler would have contacted me immediately as the damage is so obvious that cutting off the casting block as you claim to try to salvage the part is just nonsense and voids any warranty you had. All I know is the part <laughs> was not the way... Do, go ahead, do what? Attempting to use the part <laughs> voids the warranty on the part. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, in a, yeah, and you just now happen to notice the damage after removing the cutting block. In addition, affected areas are exactly the locations one would hold the part when removing the casting block with a saw. I mean, holy shit. Talk about victim blaming. So somehow, this guy Brian has such corrosive fingertips that when he grabs the part to cut the casting block off... He's managed to deteriorate it and embed these blobs of yellow shit in it. I mean, this is astonishing. Brian, you may want to see a doctor. I'm just saying. Yeah, apparently your fingertips also take chunks of resin out of the, the surface. Exactly. And, the, and and furthermore, Brian, you should be ashamed of yourself for being a bully because this is how the guy finishes his response. You should be ashamed of yourself for trying to use the part and thereby voiding the warranty. <laughs> should be ashamed of yourself Silly for ordering man. something from GT Resin. He says, if you had contacted me in a polite manner, even with the casting block removed, I would have been happy to send you a replacement at my expense. But acting like a bully, then resorting to threats of internet blackmail, just confirm my excess of the assessment of the situation. So this dude is is not just guilty of selling people terrible products and poor quality control he's a fucking gaslighter on top of it and that is one species of human being that i really hate above most all others and so that's why i just decided to show absolutely no mercy to this guy i mean th there's just no excuse and look frankly sprue brothers you guys need to have a conversation with this dude because there's even somebody in this thread about this issue that says they will no longer purchase from Sprue Brothers because they're not taking accountability for this guy. Well, you would think if if multiple people, or honestly, even if just one person writes into Sprue Brothers and says, hey, I just bought this and it's kind of garbage, you'd send somebody to go look at the other products on the shelves and see if you're if you can see the same things that, that that they're talking about, and if they are, then 
you really shouldn't sell those products anymore. At that point, yeah. you should pull them all. Mm. You should contact the person who produced them and say, hey. And get your money back. <laughs> either you provide me with uh, unblemished and, and you know, better product mm. or, I you know, I want my money back. But in the meantime, you stop selling them. You go in and... You go and investigate if, if the evidence says that there's all the parts are pretty crap, pretty flawed, then you just pull them from your catalog and then the customer doesn't have to deal with it anymore. You give this person their money back and then you deal directly with these people and stop selling them. I mean, this is the equivalent of somebody coming to your restaurant, not liking the pizza and when they complain to you about it, you telling them to go fucking talk to the pe- people who made the pepperoni. I, I mean, what? The, where in any rational universe does that make sense? Uh, in the UK, consumer law is that your redress is from the person that sold it to you, regardless of who made it. It's from the person that sold yeah. it to you. I don't know what the consumer law is in America, but that's that's how it is here. I mean, they have to take it up with the manufacturer. It's their responsibility because they have the contract with you. Exactly. 100%. The yellow shit in it is poorly mixed resin and probably it's been mixed in the cup. It's gone off. Then he's reused the cup and it's the poorly mixed shit from the last pour mixed in with the resin. Yeah. And it reacts like that. Usually it's because there's too much hardener when it's clear and yellow like that. So... That's what it is. It's shitty mixed resin in dirty cups. Yeah, I've so, seen. And some. I'm going to get an email from GT Resin. <laughs> whatever, whatever, bro. Screwcuttersunion at gmail dot com. Look, you can even come on here and and we'll interview you, and you can defend yeah. yourself. I mean, I don't know how you're going to pull that off at this point, but whatever. I mean, look, I've seen some bad resin castings, but this is way over the line. This is 1980s level. It's, I mean, shitty. It's not even that. It's just. Oh, uh, Tracy, do you remember there was a, a really infamous company that did resin Israeli conversions? Yes. Yeah, it's like that. Yeah. <laughs> I can't remember what they were called, but it's like they had this terrible reputation. I mean, I, I'm just scrolling through this post now while we're talking, counting up the amount of people in the comments section who have, who are saying, yes, I've either I, I picked them up at the Nats and examined them and put them right back down, walked away, or I bought them. And within opening two minutes after opening the box, threw them away. There's, you know, there's, I mean, just at a quick glance, there's at least a dozen people um, on a 45 comment thread that are saying that are completely agreeing with them from their own experience. And, and, and I have to say uh, that, you know, that as the, as one of the admins of the group that, Probably four or five of those guys that are commenting are guys who are very credible. These are not just, you know, pilers on. These are guys who have a long history of high-level craftsmanship, and I know that that I can trust their level of discernment. If they tell me there's a problem, I believe there's a problem. Well, when you're – I mean, I don't believe any of the posts uh, try to defend anything about the conversation. There is conversation. There, there are people commenting on the way the conversation was handled. 
Yes. And then there exactly. are people commenting on the quality of the product itself. That's what I'm talking about. Is the yeah those guys commenting on the quality of the product? And look, when I think I think when we post pictures of the product in question, the people are going to be like, "Holy shit!" Well, you've got. Well, I mean, I'm just trying to clarify. Of the four in the 45 comment thread, 100% of the people agree that yep. that this guy has been done dirty by this manufacturer and or yep. by Sprue Brothers. Um, some of them have firsthand experience who can confirm that that's the case with this man's products and the way Sprue Brothers yep. handles it. Everybody yep. else is just confirming, yeah, this sucks, man. Fuck this guy. Yeah, yeah. This is not like a post about Future or no. Vallejo. No. Where half the people love it and half the people hate it, and it's a hundred percent opinion. This as th- this is the facts. <laughs> yes, yeah. and there's yeah, a, a, there's just no wavering, and there's no sort of middle ground on this. Everybody either yeah. has bad experiences or they are empathizing and are upset alongside this guy with the way things have been handled. So. If that's the content of the comments on your post about this manufacturer, then maybe they're right. Maybe yes. they're right. If a hundred percent of the people are like, "Yeah, man, screw this, fuck this," and and I mean, how much does it take to get unanimous comments in the scale? You're yeah, right. that's what I'm trying to point out. <laughs> <laughs> like everybody, yeah. Yeah. the stars. That's, you have can say the sky's blue, and someone will fucking say no. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. but that's a unique honor, and you got it for the wrong reasons. Yeah. So, <laughs> and and listen, if there are people who are hearing this and they're saying, "Man, you guys are really being harsh," and you know, small businesses and dry, you know, this is their livelihood, and they deserve a chance, and I'm like. Okay, but I'm a capitalist, and I firmly believe that you earn customer loyalty. And some people, frankly, just have no business being in business. I think if you're going to sell something, you need to make sure it's of a minimum. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, if you're not, don't charge money for it. it, It's not fucking charity, okay? We're you're you're not you're not taking customers money based on the you know from each according to their means and to each according to their needs kind of socialist philosophy you earn that shit and some people frankly just aren't qualified and they get away with it because nobody holds them accountable yeah, there there are people out there, so many people out there who do such a good job of producing aftermarket parts, mm. you know? I mean, yeah. there really are. And so you kind of start to assume that the people who are producing aftermarket parts are all doing it to, like, improve a product, improve the hobby experience. Like, yeah. they're putting effort into doing something that they feel like needs to be addressed and it's got a wide enough appeal that they feel like they can sell what they, their, their replacement part or their solution um, that they can sell that to other people who are experiencing the same problem. So you kind of have this view on the whole that like aftermarket producers are, are trying to do a really good job and trying to be really helpful. And then you get a little reminder like this guy, who's like, man, if you don't like me, kiss my ass, you know, like I'm great. You're wrong. You you saw it off the part. Yeah, I don't get that. Saw it off the block. It's bullshit. 
most of the aftermarket, small aftermarket producers like this as well don't make money. If people are saying, oh, but he, he doesn't really make a profit and it's just for, you know, just for the love of the hobby, etc. Yeah, so are all the others as well. And they still make a decent product. I mean, I never really made much money in resin, virtually nothing, you know, less than minimum wage. You still want to make a good product. Right. And you want to talk about somebody who loves it? Okay, let's talk about ResKit. Look at the amazing... Oh, they make a profit too, though. Look, Yeah, but, but look at the amazing <laughs> shit that those yeah. guys do on a regular basis. And I don't know exactly where they're located in the Ukraine. Chris, you can fill us in, but... Kiev. Yeah, they could fucking die any day. And they're still doing it. So, I, you know, I'm yeah, not really here. They give a lot it. of their profits to friends that need drones. Exactly. And, like that, so. and I... So I just... This makes me have even less sympathy than I would normally have for this guy at GT Resin because you have no fucking excuse. Well, Halberd models, have you seen the reviews for that? They get reviews everywhere, amazing reviews for the Curtis float plane on uh, large scale planes and on hyperscale. And uh, I spoke to Chuck Vojtkiewicz about one he bought and it's an amazing kit. I think that's just like two guys in yeah. Ukraine making resin kits and they're making resin kits that look like plastic kits they're just such high quality yeah well those sms guys that tracy like you've been building that beautiful little thing sbs yeah sbs sorry yeah Yeah. i I mean there 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 are actual levels of quality yeah it's i believe there was a third burr yeah fuck okay so i had a monopoly on burrs and maybe this one's quick but this one is i don't know this one is all three of us I think I might know the one now as well. Yeah. So, and this again is a multi-part burr because it encompasses a bunch of things that are just endemic right now in the scale modeling community. So a few weeks ago, eh, and I'm going to try and get the right details in here without making this too long, but in Weathered Models, which is a very large and very well-known group on Facebook, 130,000 members now, a guy posted a diorama. And the diorama was of a, and you may have to help me if I don't remember the details perfectly. Oh, I remember now. Yep. It was of an Italian farmyard with uh, uh, Savoia Machi. SM79 Sparvario, uh, tri- yeah. tri-motor bomber. An Italian plane nobody ever heard of. <laughs> it's the most. It's one of the most famous Italian planes, to be fair. It's like the Italian version of the HE-111. It's that ubiquitous. Yeah. Yep. So it's like coming up, flying, and it's forced perspective. Fair enough, it's one seventy second or something, and there's smoke coming off it, which appears to lead into the chimney of the farmhouse, but I'll let him off. And it's dropping a bomb. But it's dropping a bomb on one thirty fifth German flak truck, Panzer and some guys, who appear unperturbed about the plane flying overhead. Most of them aren't even looking at it. Like fifteen feet overhead. In, right. Yeah, and they're in winter gear in what looks like the height of summer in Italy as well, so they must be bloody hot. Yeah. But anyway. Yes, so you've got uh two forces who are allied together. One bombing the yeah. other. Um, and the flat truck shooting at it. And shooting right. at it. And everyone is has gone to the beach wearing uh, their winter parkas. And the plane is dropping a bomb from uh, approximately 15 feet in the air, which should cause it no damage whatsoever. So, right. Yeah. So there's the setting. Yeah. So just to cut to the chase. So, so look, I from a pure execution standpoint, 
This wasn't the worst thing that any of us have seen, but it honestly was not extremely well executed either. This was a guy who's clearly coming up the skill curve, but he was trying to tell a story and he had a lot of attention to detail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's to be commended for that. I mean, it was a complicated diorama and, and clearly he put a lot of effort into it, but this would be where the little scratchy record sound uh-huh. comes into play. Yeah. He didn't get the details right. And specifically, and, and I learned this from the commentary or was reminded of this, that the markings on the aircraft were exactly of the fascist part of the Italian Air Force that was allied with Germany early on in World War II. And that there's no way they should have been shooting at each other. And several commenters pointed this out. And honestly, politely. I mean, like the worst of it was some dude who I think just wasn't, I don't know, maybe English wasn't even his first language. Yeah, that's the, that's, he was, that's what I got as well. It was kind of lost. Yeah. Like it, it came across probably a little more aggressive than than it really he, was by the fact yeah, that he did, English wasn't his first language. He He basically was trying to say, bro, are you smoking dope? And and what he wrote was some stuff like, I think, much too much THC involved in building. You know, it was a bad translation. Yeah. That was yeah. the worst of it. That was the worst of it. And so how this leads on to the story is that that there were quite a few, quite a few chimers in who were like, fuck the rivet counters. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And that blew up into this big thing that ultimately got kanked by the moderators, which is part of the burr. And then uh, a few days later, some guy posts in total white knight fashion, I can't believe all you rivet counters and you're beating this, you know, bullying this guy for his diorama and tearing down his work and, you know, just giant arm-waving protest about the mean bully rivet counters. And, of course, that turned into a big, long thing that also got kanked by the moderators. And then our good friend David Parker, who, thank God, is on the admin staff there now. But he wishes he wasn't. He might at this point. <laughs> With a page like he hasn't that. been there long. And I say thank goodness because I honestly don't feel like the group has ever been very well moderated. It's been a history of them preferring to bury conflict rather than deal with things. And that's that's the fundamental nature of my burr here. So David Parker makes a very well-worded post where he says, look, as an admin of this group... It saddens me to see the pejorative use of the term rivet counter and all of the blah, 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 de blah. And it was good. It's a really good post. He was not confrontational. He was just like, look, man, this isn't cool. Let's, let's chill out. Well, half of the respondents to that thread were like, you know, blah, blah, rivet counters ruining the hobby. Rivet counter bullies, rivet counter that, rivet counter tearing the work down. And in typical fashion, I decided to take on every single one of them. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, because I was in in a little bit of a funk, I didn't have anything to do. And I was like, okay, this is going to be my Sunday afternoon. Well, your project. (laughs) It was my project. But to be fair to myself, I observed the rules. I was not profane. 
I and I don't look. I don't level personal attacks, at least not as as offense. I don't come at somebody like that unless they do it first. And I just engaged these guys. I was look basically. I argued with each one of them that they were confusing assholes with mm-hmm. rivet counters. People with poor social skills are the ones who need to be you know, held accountable here and that rivet counting is just information. And there were quite a few people who were like, yeah, absolutely. You know, rivet counting is just a thing. It's not good or bad. It's part of the hobby. Some people really enjoy detail, all of the stuff. Anyway, eh, I got muted for seven days for talking too much. And that's, you know, part of my burr. And yeah, I am whining about it because frankly, it's bullshit. I had people coming at me you know, in all kinds of personal ways, leveling personal insults at me simply because I had the temerity to challenge the issue here. And yeah, it's lazy moderating. And we don't get anything accomplished that way. I mean, as you're going to hear in our interview with Martin here in a few minutes, there are issues that are worth taking up. And if you just snuff those because you just don't prefer conflict, well, we could take that to some extreme examples of things that have happened in history. And I have a real problem with that. So that's my multi-part burr is the whole rivet counter bullshit, but it's really about shitty, lazy, chicken shit moderating of Facebook groups. And I will say we have proven over and over again in Scale Modeler's Critique Group that if you don't take an active hand and shut down the right things, that it just continues. That's it. We took SMCG as, as kind of a, I hope Shane won't mind me saying this, as kind of a model for how we moderate the Edward Model Builders Group. And the, the simple fact is you have a clear set of rules, which are you never deviate from, you always stick to. And you clamp down hard on anyone that doesn't follow the rules early on and hard. Not necessarily with a ban, but in a stop it. The rules say you can't do that kind of, you know. Yeah. Just make clear, people aware that they're transgressing a rule. consistent. And if you do that, and if you make effort in following the group and enforcing it, the group runs really great. Yeah. It's when you your rules aren't clear, you don't follow them yourself, or you half-ass applying it, that's when problems start. Yeah, there were certainly some uh, some comedic moments in the in that thread. <laughs> someone said to me, "I said, well, defy rivet count." And he said, "Someone that that puts over emphasis on insignificant little details." I said, "What? Like who's on whose side in World War Two? Like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> apparently that's insignificant. People always go, "Oh, kids today don't know history. Fucking boomers don't give a shit about history. That's the problem." Yeah, and that's the fundamental thing. I think you also said, "Who gets to decide what's significant?" Yeah. And that's the fundamental rub. I mean, you know, we we each enjoy the hobby for our own reasons. We each get, you know, gratification out of different parts of it. And, you know, the guys that are always like, well, I just model for fun. Oh, no, no, no. No, no. The best one. Because this was a literal uh, a comment thread in that post that came up. And I, I really couldn't help but enjoy it. I model for me. And somebody was like, well, then why do you put pictures of it on the internet? Right. Yeah. And they were like, well, 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 and he's like, no, really, if you model for yourself, then when you're finished with it, you, you know, 
you smile and you put it in your display case and you start the next model. Like the fact that you're yeah. putting it on the internet contradicts the fact that you model for you because you're putting it out there for approval. And the other part of that whole thread that was just mind blowing are the amount of people who just uh, throw a tantrum about the way the internet works. Because yeah. because yeah. all they did was like, you better not comment on my model if you put it up there. Or I'll tell you, like I was like, I'll tell you to go pound sand. I'm like, yeah, people, <laughs> you're putting your pic- gosh, <laughs> you're putting pictures of your of your work on the internet, and you're expecting no one to say anything bad about it. Like, then don't put it up. It's the internet. There's you can't control it. I have had people come back to me and say, I have had people come back to me and say. Uh, I put it up for other people's enjoyment. And it's like, that's kind of hubristic to think that everyone's going to love your model. When it's yeah, it is, so for sure. Okay, so I want to beg for a little patience here, and, and I want to give you the verbatim. Because, you know, we talk about this stuff, and it's, and it's you know, well, he said, they said. But but I actually screenshot, Ed, screen, screen shooted. Screenshotted. Screenshotted. <laughs> <laughs> I, do, I do a lot of that. Yeah, uh, because I think this is indicative of some of this stuff, and I think the details matter. So this guy, his name's Christopher Jones, and, and I, I've seen his posts, and he seems like a fine, you know, fine, fine individual, nice guy. He says this, and, and, and the reason that I'm pointing that out is because this is a perception that I think exists with some people, regardless of their own character. It's not just horrible people who make this mistake about the identity of rivet counters. So he says... The problem with rivet counters, in quotes, is that they are so darn tedious. And let's be honest here. Many rivet counters, again in quotes, do it less to be helpful but more to show how much they know, and that makes them tedious. If rivet counters are really only interested in being helpful, they could just DM and keep the rest of us out of it. So I have a problem with this because it's so fucking presumptuous. You're assigning intent, Christopher Jones. You have no idea what someone like David Parker is thinking when he says, actually, no, the tool latches on the Panzer IV were shaped thusly, and here's my CAD rendering that I'm 3D printing that shows exactly that. We know David Parker. You could not find a nicer guy or a guy who is less interested in self-aggrandizement, right? That's true. And, and, and so when you generalize these issues, okay, this is a fundamental human problem and I have an issue with it. And so I said, (laughs) and I will confess to being a little spicy here, Christopher Jones, let's be honest here. You have no idea what you're talking about. You're simply projecting. Did you ever consider the possibility that someone might provide information for all the readers and not just the person who built the model in question? Because I firmly believe that. It's not just a conversation between you and the OP. It's you, but it's a conversation between everybody who's reading. And, you know, it's like with the Italian campaign thing. I didn't, I had never really paused to consider the difference between, you know, early war Italian air force and late war Italian air force. I'm like, Oh yeah, you know what? Good point. He simply says, no, I'm not projecting. I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, bro, this is about as textbook, a case of projecting as I think I've ever seen. And I said, okay, so you're just mistaken. 
He says, you're going to love this, Chris. He says, it's very simple, Will. If you peed your pants and I gave you advice on the correct way to use the toilet in front of all your peers, how helpful am I being? Please note, I clearly stated many, not all, but not most, but many. That you feel the compulsive urge to comment negatively speaks volumes. Perhaps you're taking it personally. So, first of all, worst analogy in the history of analogies, which I said. And uh, as I then said, as with a lot of people in this thread, you're making assumptions. The fundamental one being that providing historical information is negative. Right? I'm going to relate a story that happened in that same thread. Um, There was a guy who complained that some rivet counter, when he posted his model of Japanese aircraft that attacked Pearl Harbor, he was doing a Pearl Harbor diorama or whatever, some quote-unquote rivet counter came along and told him that that actually that aircraft didn't attack Pearl Harbor. It was in maintenance when the attack was taking place. (laughs) And I... To which I responded, so if you had had this information before you put the markings on and you had access to the correct markings, would that information cause you to put the the correct markings on the airplane? And he came back with a no, it wouldn't. And I was like, so then maybe this guy isn't putting this information out for you because you're not going to act on it, but nor does it hurt you to have this information given to you. Somehow you survived this. Yeah, the information was put out there. You chose not to act on it. I don't, you know, nobody's judging you for that or or you're being stubborn and I am judging you, but (laughs) on the whole, like, you know, it didn't affect you one way or the other. It it affected you in zero way, but everybody else reading that thread learned something about that aircraft and Pearl Harbor. Yep. Yep. And he came back with nothing. He had nothing to say. It said nothing negative about his model at all. No, no. Yeah, all I saw that whole was, exchange. Yeah, it was just inf- you know, it was purely information. Somebody gave you well, information. Only, the only difference is, he can't say now that that plane was at Pearl Harbor, but it doesn't change the model. It's still a nice model. Well, or whatever, he, by his know. own admission, even if he had the information beforehand, he wouldn't have done anything with it. He right. would have just used so, the markings that he was going to put on it. So, and that's totally cool. That's look, fine. You right, do that, you. That, right, right. That's it. It's fine. Yeah. So nobody cares about that. This guy was just giving you information and giving other people information. That information did wouldn't have changed the course of your model whatsoever, nor was it a criticism of your model because he wasn't really talking about that aircraft. But still, it hurts feelings bad enough that th- this guy is suddenly a rivet counter by just giving information that a lot of other people might have been like, oh, that's cool to know. Right. You know? It might, who knows? There might have been that one guy out there who was like, damn, that's really cool. I'm going to do that or until... Or I'm going to go dig up some more information about that. That sounds cool. I want to know more about right. that. Exactly. And that gets to my last line to Christopher, which was maybe you're the one taking it personally. And I, okay, now I'm projecting, but that's how it seems with these guys' responses is that, honestly, they just seem butthurt that somebody came along and said something that they didn't like about their model or whatever it was, and they decided to take it personally. When it really was just information. And then I got this John Thomas guy who's like, Will Patterson, don't you ever shut up? And anyway, so this guy goes on to say, you know, I stated clearly that that many who who provide unsolicited, quote, 
helpful information are motivated not so much to be helpful, but more often to show how much they know, which makes dealing with them tedious. So he's just doubled down on the projection that I accused him of in the beginning. And I'm just like, this is really the thing. And he went on to say some nice things about stuff I say about chemical paint and, and then accuses me of continuing to make inferences. And I was about to respond that <laughs> there really were not any inferences necessary <laughs> because he pretty well spelled it out in textbook fashion. But that's when I got muted and I believe that David got told to shut the thread down because all comments got locked. And 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 that is the entire story. And that's my cat locked the airwaves, baby. Yeah. Censorship yeah. on my free internet platform. Yeah. And and here's and here's the and here's the real rub, okay? Is they say at the top of the page on weathered models, weathered models only. And Barless, the guy who's owned that page from day one, has always told me, you know, in the, in the background, look, we really don't want people discussing technique because that's where arguments happen and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We want it to just be a display of weathered models. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. Fine. That's a very narrow definition of what you want your Facebook group to be. Good luck with that. But them's the rules. And if they are going to be the rules, fucking enforce them already. And it's just never happened historically with that group, except selectively when you make a little too much noise, like I did. And like David did, I mean, if that's, if that's what you want, then turn off the comments and only allow reactions to photos. Exactly. Do post approval, whatever it is. And, and, you know, don't make the excuse that, well, the group's too big and we don't have enough moderators. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Get more, take more time, yep. whatever it takes. There's no excuse. So yeah, that's, that's, that's my many, many part burr. And, uh, that's that's a drum that I won't. That I'm not. I don't plan to stop beating anytime soon because I think it in in encapsulates a number of fundamental problems that we have as human beings, as human beings on the internet, and just we just need to figure out ways to have more grace and be a little cooler to each other and a little more tolerant of people who don't, you know have the same style or who don't like the same shit. And that's why I think it all kind of fits in pretty well with our interview that we're going to do with Martin. Yeah, I agree. All right. So that's Spurs for this week. Yeah. That's Burrs for about the next six months. <laughs> well, we didn't have any last, last, last episode. So, uh, you know, we made up for it. Yeah. yeah. Let's have some adverts and then we'll be back for our discussion. Hi, I'm Scott, the creator and owner of the Scale Modeler Supply, Australia's largest manufacturer of hobby paints. Our premium airbrush-ready acrylic acca paints are designed specifically for use on plastics, with a comprehensive range covering all popular modelling subjects including military, aircraft, rail, auto, sci-fi and more. And not only that, but we also have a wide selection of essential hobby tools and now, infinite colour and new range of water-based paints for miniatures. So to check out our range and to find your closest retailer, please visit our website at scalemodeler.com.au. 
So when quality matters, choose SMS Packs. Can't get enough model podcasts? Well, you should know there are plenty of other really good model podcasts out there, like our friends at Small Subjects, Built Sideways, Plastic Model Mojo, The Model Geeks, and many more. To find a full list of the amazing shows out there, go on over to modelpodcast.com to get a full listing of all of the great scale model podcasts available. That's modelpodcast.com. Our discussion this week, uh, I thought it'd be a good idea for us to look at some visual art uh, as an inspiration and ideas you can apply to modeling. A lot of times people talk about their modeling being art, and I think it's really useful for us to look at the visual language of art and the discussion language of art in how you look at your modeling. So uh, each of us has picked an image this week, and to kick us off, over to you, Tracy. I was pretty stoked about this topic. I think it's a unique conversation that we're having. And I think once we get sort of going, it'll give people uh, a different sort of image stream, media stream, information stream to like, to start thinking about kind of how we present scale models. Yeah, I think, uh, sorry to interject, but I, I, the, the, the idea here is to explore using other mediums as inspiration and information on what we do as scale modelers, especially if you're like, if you, if you, if you build dioramas, right? Because storytelling is a part of all kinds of art forms. And I think looking at the way that other artists do it is instructional, right? Wasn't that kind of what your intent was? It is also, I think there's a tendency with uh, modelers to look at other models for inspiration. And it, it's good to sort of look beyond that and look outside of mm-hmm. modeling yeah. in similar genres, which, you know, you could say that modeling is a visual art to, for inspiration and for, I'm really into uh, the language of painting and stuff like that. So that can help with your storytelling and everything else, but also photographs, films, you know, anything really, anything like that. Yeah, I think the best scale modelers probably use other visual mediums to sort of inform their style. They, you know, they have to be able to take little bits and pieces from, um, from other media and, you know, kind of be able to incorporate the things that they really respond to in, in paintings or photographs or even graphic design and sculpture, you know, like all those things are, are, bits and pieces of all of those things are represented in scale modeling. So I, I to me, I think the, the best of the best are people who, um, whether they've explicitly said it or not, I'm sure that they've looked at um, other medium and, and had it inform their own modeling. I think it's quite common for modelers to look at films, but there are, you know, mm-hmm. because it's, films are quite often particularly if you're a military modeler, watching war movies can make you want to go and build something. From <laughs> I thought it was just, I thought it was just to find all the things that are wrong. <laughs> yeah. There's that too. <laughs> yeah. Mostly to complain that the Germans aren't represented fairly enough at the end of fury. <laughs> How dare they diss the third Reich. Um, so I've actually just sent a second image 
to you guys mm. that um, that we might be able to talk about as well. But anyway, I, we'll, we'll talk about the one that I initially picked. Both of the images that I was drawn to are um, are by a, an American illustrator named Dean Cornwell. And I studied illustration in school. And I was in New York, and I was able to not only visit all the museums that that wonderful city has, but there was a place that is no longer with us, which is unfortunate. But for years and years and years, the entire time that I lived up there, I was able to go to a place called Illustration House. And Illustration House was uh, it's an it was an auction house for illustrations. So you could walk in there, and they would have a gallery set up of all the works that they were auctioning off. And I think they did twice a year auctions or maybe quarterly. I can't recall, but there'd be dozens and dozens and dozens of just classic illustrations um, hanging up on the walls. And the guy who ran it was uh, a guy named Walt Reed who's since passed and Walt studied illustration and knew a lot of these guys that he had hanging on the wall or were taught by people who were taught by the guys hanging on the wall at any rate. Um, so Dean Cornwell, the, the, the father of American illustrations, Howard Pyle, uh, Howard Pyle went on to form the Brandywine school. Uh, the Brandywine school produced people like uh, N.C. Wyeth and Harvey Dunn, just scores and scores of the, I don't know, the second generation of American illustrators. And those illustrators went on to teach people like Dean Cornwell here uh, and Norman Rockwell, things like that. So I was very lucky to be able to go there and study these pieces quite often. And I did. And I've always liked Dean Cornwell's work. And this piece is, uh, I'll describe it, even though we're going to throw a photo up on the album. It's a Venice gondola scene. It's twilight. In the foreground, there are a couple of maybe mooring poles. Uh, one is painted in a candy cane sort of color. And then the next plane is the uh, the gondola itself, a well-dressed couple and the, the gondolier. And then behind that is uh, an arching bridge that goes over the canal. And then beyond that are uh, representations of buildings. So what I've always liked about sort of the, the best of the American illustrators is, is composition is easy. It's easy to see and understand good composition. And this piece in particular, it's, it's really all about composition. Um, you got, you know, everything's kind of a strong horizontal. You've got the, um, the gondola, the arcing bridge and the buildings in the background, but you're you're kind of framed in by the opening under the bridge and that um, candy cane pole, and you look directly at the people in the gondola. The well-dressed man is looking at the woman. The woman is looking away. So his, uh, the way his head is, is turned directs you to her. The way her head is turned away from him directs you to the gondolier. The arch of the gondolier's back follows the arch of the bridge, which you know, your eye travels across and then you come back down this candy cane pole and you go back around. It's a circular composition that keeps your eye moving. And even though the colors are very muted, which is another thing that I think um, we could talk about when it comes to sort of 
film and photography and art the way um, colors can be um, influential in, in scale modeling. Because most of what we do uh, outside of, of you know, race cars, motorcycles, things like that, which are flashy colors, everything's done in pretty muted colors. So again, you've got pretty muted colors here, but the the pop of color is that blue blanket that she's leaning on, right? So it, it makes sure that your eye lingers there before it moves on. The gondolier's got a red sash, which is very muted. You travel over the bridge, and there again, there's very muted reds in the candy cane thing, and then you're back to her where she's wearing sort of a, a whitish dress, leaning against this very poppy blue uh, blanket and you know it that visual language tells you stop here and look at this for a second um and then your eye travels back around again so again for me storytelling and composition are really really apparent and i think scale modelers could use uh the the, the sort of the things that they could take from a piece like this is the circular composition to make sure that the thing, the elements in your diorama, in your vignette, the way you organize your figures, they interact in a way that it keeps your eye moving and looking at everything, but you always come back. You know, it, it's a circle. It's not uh, the letter C. It doesn't drop you off the edge of the diorama and then your eye isn't traveling anymore. So I think, you know, these muted colors are really nice. The composition, again, being circular and keeping you moving, but also like you choose what you want people to linger and look at the longest. And you can do that, I think, in scale modeling by putting an element in that's got a little bit more saturated color. Not not like, you know, a bright pink umbrella, but that might work, you know, but something that arrests the eye enough that you linger there and look at what's going on before your eye travels around the diorama again. I think it's a little more challenging in three dimensions, but I think that this is like a, you know, it's instructive as a, as a way to think about, or just a mindset about directing the viewer's eye where you want it. That, that circular thing you're talking about is like the, the, the shadow on the underside of the bridge and the reflection of the shadow all of that leads around in a circle to the bright spot and the blue mm-hmm. spot that represents her. And she's the important part of the whole thing. And from a, just looking at it like a photographer, it, uh, it, one of the first things I noticed is he's definitely used the rule of thirds here very yeah. strongly for that composition. But the other thing that I noted about it that I think is inst- instructive is the piece has a lot of emotion to it. You can clearly see her level of of disdain, his, you know, <laughs> despair. Uh, you know, you can sort of imagine the conversation that's going on there. And the gondolier is very studiously trying to ignore the drama while at the same time not ignore it at all. And the painter has accomplished that without any of the level of detail that we tend to obsess about. Like, look at her eyes. They're just, they're just dark spots. 
but but they're very much it's obvious that she's kind of looking down and away which communicates exasperation disdain whatever you want to call it and there's no worry about what color the sclera is or what you know how perfectly round the pupils are or any of that kind of stuff that we obsess about uh, and i think that i think that's important the other thing i noticed about it is that he's offset the composition on the right-hand side with a triangular array of 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 bright spots the 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 window lights in the background mm-hmm. that that get you to look around the rest of the composition as well she's definitely the protagonist and um like you said you know well there's a couple other things he's done as well, which modelers could consider. The the guy she's with, his face is down and mostly in shadow, so that mm-hmm. takes away a lot of his personality. You get that he's obviously, you know, on a losing uh, thing here. He's, uh, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> obviously this relationship is not going good places, and he's the one that that's um, that's struggling with that, and she's the one that's like, I've had enough. Uh, but because his face is in shadow, hers is the one that you're drawn to. So she's very much the central character in the blue and the white dress. But also, uh, Tracy, when you talked about how the bridge frames it, that's really important. And that's something people could use in modeling too, using background elements to frame the, the uh, main focus of the diorama or the model even to, um, to focus you on the, the thing that's most important in it, the center of the scene. And instead of just randomly putting trees in the background, you can think about where you put them and the height of them and all of that. Maybe branches coming over just to subconsciously frame what you want people to focus on mainly. I think it's interesting as well, the two poles in the foreground kind of mirror her and the man as well. So there's mirroring going on, which is nice for the composition as well. Mm. It's cool. I like it. Also, there's little things like, you know, if you follow the gondolier's back... You get to his hat, and then you travel down his cool mustache and his chin. Boop, 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 you get to his arms, and then there's the gondola pole, which basically kind of points back at her. Yeah. So, I mean, if you want to, that's sort of a secondary composition element, but you, I could see, you know, an arrangement of figures and, you know, someone holding a rifle and the rifle being just angling the figure in a way that the rifle is again like kind of directing the eye creating a little path for the eye to travel up to again to the focal point um and then if you guys want to pull up the one that i just sent it's the same artist Mm -hmm. and i think um i just wanted to mention that one because i think in terms of figure painting i think it's it kind of also uh brings up a pretty decent um, conversation. Yeah, that's a really strong example of color composition and using relative brightness to direct your eye. Yeah, yeah. So, which is even, something that that you can totally do with dioramas. We've talked before about using muted colors in the background and brighter colors where you want the uh, action to be. Yeah. So that's pretty much it. You know, everything in this, uh, his entire palette, same, it's Dean Cornwell again, his, um, everything in the palette is super muted, except her dress, which is bright, her arm traveling down, and, you know, within that bright field is a knife. So you're, 
it doesn't get lost in the background. It really pops out that mm-hmm. she's got a knife. And again, the just the pose of the male figure, it leads you back to her face. You travel down the arm to the red field with the knife. The knife points at the hand. The hand goes back up to the figure. And again, circular composition. But I think what's really cool about that is, uh, about this piece, is just the the super muted palette of everything except, you know, the basically the background of where the action is. Her her dress being that bright poppy red, and that where the knife is is sort of being held, also super directs the eye and and I feel like that's something I see in figure painters already doing that, you know. It goes back as well to what Peter Rushes did when he put that patch of snow behind the guy's hand yep. in Mind the Gap to frame the, the where the hands are meeting. It's a similar kind of concept, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah, I just wanted to mention that one, even though it wasn't my my initial choice. I thought it was interesting to to point out how something that simple can be applied to even just painting figures. Who's next? Okay, so this is an image by uh, the photographer William Albert Allard. And he's part of what I would call the modern generation of uh, famous American color photographers that really all kind of came out of the National Geographic era, uh, along with guys like Steve McCurry and Joe Joe McNally. And... Uh, this is shot on on uh, Kodachrome, and so it kind of has an overall sort of muted color palette, but you can still see that in addition to using the direction of light to make sure that you know what the important thing is in this image, that that's also where the strongest colors are in the picture. And, you know, and this is kind of a testament to the talent of photographers like this, that he composed this in a split second. I mean, he, he probably saw what was going on there and kind of got himself in position, you know, to make sure that the sheep were there in the background um, and that they were bright so that you can see that they're there laying in the grass, that they're dead. And he's very much used the rule of thirds to point you Mm-hmm. Right, right at this little boy's face, and I th- this this is an image that still to this day just hits me straight in the feels. I, I mean it, <laughs> it it makes me a little weepy just to look at it. I mean, I you know he probably had exactly one frame because he this is this was shot probably in the eighties or the early nineties, mm. and so he was shooting on a manual film camera probably had exactly one exposure to get this. And, you know, it. this to me is a classic example of storytelling with imagery because I don't think there's any doubt at all what's going on there. And, you know, he brings the, he, <laughs> he brings the feels. Um, and uh, so it was an easy pick for me on this assignment. I think it's really... It, it it sort of um, boggles the mind how just the contrast of, of a painter sitting down and composing and mixing colors and creating his composition and, and all of these things. And this is, you can't, you can compose it within the viewfinder. You can crop it whenever you're printing, but 
ultimately, like, you have no control over the colors that that little boy is wearing. Right. You have no control. You have no control over this. You just have to be in the right place at the right time and be able to get this. And yeah, like his, the, the entire palette of everything is super saturated. Even the little boy's clothing is somewhat saturated, but it's the most colorful thing there. Yeah. And he has a, he has, this is in the days before Photoshop, but he did have a little bit of control over that with the film processing. Yeah, for sure. But, but and, you know, and, and doing a little bit of, of darkroom, uh, you know, trickery with dodging and burning to put a little more light here or a little less light there. But, yeah, overall, you know, you get a split second to do this as a photographer. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of skills in that. I mean, not just the technical skills, but the main one is, yeah, having that ability to see the moment and capture see, it. Seeing it coming, that's the thing. Yeah. Being yeah. able to basically predict the future and and be at the, you know, be able to, to to press the shutter release at that intersection point. I think it, what's super interesting about this compositionally is you've got the focus of the picture in the foreground, obviously on a, a, a higher level of ground than the story, which is in the background and on a lower level. And again, like using just directional clues like all the all the uh plowed furrows in the back are directing your eye f- forward to the story and this and this little boy and then where they stop goes horizontally across and takes you directly to his eyes mm-hmm. leading um, lines yep so i think as a as a modeler what i see in this is um how important it is to to look at what you're trying to compose from as many angles as you can and make sure that you're being very deliberate and maybe somewhat clever about how to direct people's eye to what you want them to look at, to what the story is. But what's also cool is the story is on another plane of the diorama. So, you know, Whereas someone might, if you told someone about this image, what they might picture in terms of a scale model is a flat field with a little boy and the dead sheep and a man walking in the background in the plowed furrows. But when you're actually seeing it and able to appreciate it, immediately what I think is how cool it would be to do a diorama where the, the foreground is high the middle ground with the story is taking place is at a lower level. And then you can use some directionality in the background to point towards what you want. But, but again, like it's not often that you look at a diorama from the high point to the low point, you generally turn it around and everything is composed from the low point to the high point. So instantly this presents a visual challenge that I'm like, Oh, I want to try to do that. You know? So like automatically I'm, the same compositional conversation as we were talking about with the painting that I chose is going on here with colors and muted colors and making sure that the, you know, the the little boy's sweater and hat and the little peak of red shirt underneath it are all focusing your eye on him first and then traveling around the background. And then there's all the directional clues with the furrows and everything. I think it would be, 
a really, uh, really fun challenge to try to replicate something like that as a scale model diorama. It would be for sure. But, but I think that the color composition thing that he's doing is the number one takeaway for me anyway, because again, it doesn't really matter what the medium is, uh, whether you're painting or photographing or building a, a diorama, you can, you can use, you can use color composition most easily to your advantage. As modelers, we get to choose that. The photographer yeah. doesn't yeah. necessarily, they might be able to, like you say, push the saturation in some areas and reduce it in others and stuff like that. But as modelers, we got total control over it. So we can use that very well for me as well another thing to take away from it although i still think that the color focus is the main thing is that there are very few elements in the picture there's the boy possibly his father an adult in the background the furrows the dead sheep um the land flatland and the the sort of ride he's on and that's it so when you're designing a diorama i think economy is really important to uh, eliminate any elements that don't tell the story and this is a very sparse, in terms of elements, there's very few elements in the picture, but it's it's very, very eloquent in the story. Yeah, I would agree with that. I have to stop looking at it or I'm going to need a tissue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Just You just want to reach out and hug him, don't you? All right, so uh, I'll go on to mine if that's okay. All right, now, like a lot of people, I used to be one of those Western otaku that's obsessed with Japanese culture and... Um, when I was a bit younger, my twenties, everything Japanese was brilliant and just totally, totally into it. And I've kind of grown up a bit now. <laughs> I'm not quite so obsessed with it. But uh, one thing I did um, keep a love for is the work of the uh, woodblock artist Yoshitoshi. And this one is um, from a series he did about the Boshin War, which was the war between the, the Shogunate forces and the Emperor when the the um, Imperial, uh, the Imperial Restoration, which happened around the time he was alive. So he actually went to some of the battlefields and saw the aftermath and stuff like that. Uh, this is a triptych. It's three panels. Um, one of the most famous and most popular artists working in the time. So he was really big at a time when this art form was dying out because photography was starting to come in. And um, when it originally came out, firstly, it was to... The, the name uh, ukiyo-e means uh, images of the floating world. And originally it was uh, were blocks of uh, kabuki theatre and high society and stuff like that. And people would buy them as a sort of um, like the OK magazine of the time, Hello magazine of the time. And uh, it was really, it was a very popular sort of mass medium and it was populist as well. It wasn't high art. But towards the end of the 19th century with photography coming in and newspapers and everything else, less and less people were probably buying them and it got it became more of an art and less of a of a craft so to speak and he was sort of at the the cusp of it, its decline really there are still people making it today but in the same way that you get a lot of people doing things in Japan where they live in cultural treasures and you know it's a rarefied high art uh so it's still reportage to a certain extent and the the title of it is uh the battle of sano shrine uh, 1874 which was a battle that was fought in Ueno uh, which is the district now of Tokyo um, by a shrine between the imperial forces which was sorry the, the um, shogunate forces which were surrounded and the imperial forces which were surrounding them from the outside and the battle ended in a bloodbath with the um, 
Imperial forces using artillery to destroy the shrine, start a fire, and killed almost everyone inside except the commander. So uh, to look at it right to left, um, which is the, the way you're supposed to view them, the right-hand panel uh, features the uh, Imperial commander uh, talking to one of his subordinates, and uh, which is Amano Hachiro. He's the one with the when you look at the image with the black breastplate. Uh, he's talking to one of his subordinates, and they're framed because he's the key commander and the key um, personality in the scene by the red, bright red of the temple behind them. The center panel has two of his warriors, uh, one with his back to us, then a tree on the next plane, and then behind that, another one blowing on a conch. And the left-hand panel has some trees, the gate of the shrine, uh, and a dead warrior. Now, all of them, all of the figures in the scene, apart from the dead guy, are facing left. So from the point of view of modelling, it implies the presence of the people uh, they're fighting without actually having them in the scene. So you don't need to have them in the scene because everyone's attention is focused on the same place. But where Amano and his, his subordinate are talking, Amano is pointing to the left and his subordinate is pointing towards the back of the scene, which hints at the fact they're surrounded. So there's... By that, you, you they look like they're kind of arguing and you get the uh, impression from that. It tells the story that there's things going on all around them and it's a, a bigger battle. Uh, the, in the centre panel, uh, one of the warriors has the image of a severed head on his back. We can't see his face. So the, the image on his kimono of the severed head kind of stands in for his face, but also hints at his uh, ultimate um, fate because <laughs> it's... Uh, at the end of a battle, even at this time, which was in sort of yeah the late nineteenth century, it was still quite common in Japan to take severed heads as trophies after a battle. Uh, but him and the guy he's with are both covered in blood, so you can see the actions close, that the danger's close. They've been fighting, and it's not like far distant, which is then sort of um, stressed by the fact there's a dead guy right in front of them, a dead. Uh, comrade right in front of them so wherever the danger is it's close enough that anyone in this scene could be killed uh, they tend to lean in a very stylized way which is something you can look at in modeling when it's it's more sort of a uh, convention of the form uh, but one thing I like is that all of the trees except one lean towards them so that kind of stands in for the enemy pushing towards them I think so this is a just a, a box diorama waiting to happen. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I've got a plan to do it, to do it as flats in a box, if you see what I mean, yeah. because it's a very flat medium. Uh, the scene's divided into three because there's a limit to the form, which was that wood blocks at the time were made at a standard size of 36 centimetre by 26 or 15 by 10. So every original print I've seen is a similar size. And I think that must be a limit to how the, the paper was pressed into the blocks and everything else. Uh, but artists use that, and this one divides the story up into three vignettes, and the trees help to do that as well. They divide up the, the action. And he's using brightness yeah. and, and color composition, not quite as much, but the brightness element is, is strong because all of the characters, you know, like their upper torso and, mm -hmm. and head and face, is what he wants you to see the most. That's the brightest thing. That's where your eye is naturally going to go. Yeah, all of the main characters um, are, are high, are foregrounded by the colour, like you say, by the white on them and stuff like that, and the darkness in the background. Well, even more than that, the 
the uh, progression that your eye should travel through this piece is dictated by the fact that the two main characters at the starting point of the visual story have this bright red behind them. And Mm. one of the people in the foreground has green pants. So you've got contrasting colors right there. Yeah. The the two colors as well. It's almost to that point where they contrast, where they vibrate, Mm -hmm. where it almost annoys your eye because it's that strong a contrast. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those are complementary colors, red and green. Um, And he's, the green is just saturated enough that it's not a drab color. Um, but that red still pops. So that that's where your eye goes. Like that red green combo is, is the first place your eye looks and it should be because that's where the story starts. And then the story goes from that person in that part of the picture all the way to the left. And, you know, the next character is pointing to the left and then the next character is looking to the left and the next character is looking to, I mean, it's all, it's very intentional and it underscores the fact that there's a lot going on outside of this that you don't need to see to know that it's happening because every, every, every person in there living and dead is reacting to what's going on outside this picture. Yeah. The, the actions implied off screen, so to speak. Yeah. The trees are black as well, and that helps to foreground the figures more because they're they're so dark against the figures. And there's height in it, something we talk about all the time with the the gate and the trees and everything else. Although it's a very horizontal um, composition, it's broken up like yours was with the poles because there was uh, more impulse by the bridge as well, broken up by vertical elements. And the vertical elements get more more frequent as you travel as your eye travels from mm-hmm. right to left so it it, yeah. it kind of builds an intensity um with those vertical elements and then again you've got the i guess this is a gate in white on the left hand side yeah so you've got all again you're talking about how the black kind of represents the opposing forces enclo- like mm-hmm. encroaching on them it also shows the white the single white element in the middle of all that kind of shows how outnumbered they are. Well, the other thing that I like about it is if you look very closely, there's a secondary story being told in the background that that reinforces. Even way, way back in the background, you can see over on the far left-hand side. Yeah. There's um, smoke and fire indicating sort of the the gunfire and things in the background. Well, there are also other, other figures back there, you know, sort of indicating the frenzy of the battle. There's a fence, if you look really closely, mm-hmm. but there's maybe also figures and tree, and they all kind of, they're dark and shadowy and, and pushed right back, but they're definitely there. There's the impression of that adds to the feeling of being surrounded and stuff. Yeah, it looks like on the left-hand side in the background next to the fence, you've got two mm. people firing and at least one person laying yeah. on the ground. I think this is, uh, as well as the people in the background, this is a good example of using background elements to represent or hint at other figures in the um, in the scene as well, like the trees and the gate and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, in between the the gate and the third figure in the background, there it looks that to me looks like more figures too. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it's it's neat. Like all the action is the the story's taking place on the frontal plane. <laughs> I've already just got noticed the guy running through the gate. I yeah, notice him before. Yeah, I noticed him earlier too. The whole story is taking the the focal point of the story is taking place in the foreground, 
And mm. there's a secondary story in the background, which all kind of supports the fact that there's a much larger story going on off the piece. Yeah, that's that's cool. That's cool. Cool stuff. Well, I think for me, you know, what I instantly am sort of how, how this in, sort of inspires me and in, in my thinking with modeling is like, you know, you could have a group of soldiers kind of pinned down against a building of some kind. Mm. Um, and maybe through the window, there's something interesting going on, but you could also sort of use this. I, I, I'm really drawn to this, this idea that there's this single white element on the left kind of representing how outnumbered they are. And I feel like in, in a, you know, a little vignette that you could do, you could have all of the action taking place on one plane by having, you know, soldiers pinned down against a building, but then you could do something along these lines to emphasize that they're, they're pinned down outnumbered. Um, you know, there's, there's one element of them and many elements of, of a different type that could indicate, you know, how, how overwhelming the opposing force is. Again, like that's, that's cool stuff to think about, right? I'm not sure if it's coincidence as well, but white's the color of death. And the only person who's not wearing white is Amano and he survived. So I don't know if that's a, a hint or not. I could be reading too much into it. <laughs> it's like when I did English literature at school and you basically ended up analyzing the use of the word the in a sentence. But why not put that, <laughs> why not make that an element of the storytelling? You know? Yeah. Again, we're certainly something you could do. Yeah, yeah. we're able to control the situation that we're presenting. Um, mm. All right. Well, this was fun, and uh, I'd really like to hear from people in the audience uh, their suggestions as well of things we could look at. Anyone got any suggestions? Please do send them in. Or anyone got any feedback on this segment? And maybe it's something we could do again in the future if there was uh, some interest in it or something similar or different yeah this was cool and fun yeah i, li I like all right i think it, it's got my creativity um my creative brain is turning now it i'm working on a diorama at the moment as you know the secret project uh and it's got me really thinking now about the composition and how i could change it particularly what you said about the foreground being higher than the background and stuff like that and it's the, not necessarily to use that but just to think about that more about how height's used rather than just same old same old of height in the background low at the foreground or high on the left low on the right kind of thing so talking of storytelling oh it's almost as if we planned this <laughs> uh next we've got an interview with martin drayton who's fantastic at telling stories uh and who's also taking inspiration himself from tv and what have you uh we had a really great chat with him and we really got in pretty deep so uh, i hope you'll enjoy that i think you will Hey everyone, it's even more Chris. What more could you ask for? Well, this time I want to talk to you about Inside the Armour Publications. Just had a huge restock of Winsy kits, BF109 kits. So if you're looking for your BF109s, 148, my favourite kits on the market, do head on over to InsideTheArmour.com or check out my eBay store ITA discounts. I've also had a big restock of Tetra recently. Got some fantastic stuff in there, including the Jackal High Mobility Vehicle, AS90 and a bunch of other cool stuff. And I've also got my own books, of course, including the Modeling AFE Club Armour book featuring fantastic modelers like Mark Neville, David Parker. And of course, you can still get your hands on models from Ukraine Volume 2 
featuring many names from the world of modeling that we've had on this show and others besides producing some really great work whilst raising money for humanitarian aid for Ukraine. All of the profits from that book do go to the Disasters Emergency Committee Ukraine Appeal. So head on over to InsideTheArmor.com, check out all the great products we've got available. And if you'd like to see something new, drop me an email. I'm always open to suggestions. That's InsideTheArmor.com. So welcome, Martin Drayton, to the Sprue Cutters Union. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. We've got you on because we want to talk to you about your fantastic dioramas and your kind of scenes that you've built. Before we do, though, can you tell us a bit about yourself and about your modelling, how you got started? Okay. So I started, like most people, as a kid. Um, My dad was actually an engineer and my parents were both from the West Indies and Western is not a hotbed of scale modeling, especially in the forties. <laughs> so um, my dad was an engineer, so he was quite interested. I don't know how he even came across scale models, but he brought home a frog one seventy second sale Spitfire, <laughs> which even embossed markings on the on the kit itself. Around and uh, we that, we built that kind of together. And then jumped straight in. The next kit he bought was the Airfix 124th scale Messerschmitt 109. So it was a bit of a wow. leap. Wow, yeah. Um, he mostly built that. I did bits and pieces. And then pretty much after that, it cut me loose and I started building my own stuff. Carried on. You know, like most people, you stop when you discover girls, music, alcohol and stuff. But, you know... I had an afro and thick glasses. I would, the girls weren't beating a path to my door. So. <laughs> it was mostly it was listening music and booze then. Um, yeah, and I, carried, I stopped building then. And it wasn't until we emigrated to the States, um, I had some flash of nostalgia. And I bought, I think, three or four aircraft kits, because that's what I used to build, just aircraft. But didn't build them. I just stuck them in the cupboard. And then many years later came the lockdown. And I was bored. I was at home. Um, my employer had asked us to take unpaid leave and they'd pay our health insurance. So I did that. Um, so I had nothing to do. And I opened the cupboard one day, saw these kits and thought, yeah, give them a shot. First one I built was um, 172nd scale Hezegawa Panther. You know, the dark, dark navy blue finish. And um, it looked like an eight-year-old had painted it with their feet. It was really, <laughs> really bad. <laughs> But it got me started again. And um, I carried on, did a P51, and then uh, bought an airbrush and uh, built a TSR2 in a what-if color scheme, like a RAF 1970s good-to-slow type deal. And then um, on our wedding anniversary, my wife bought me the classic Tamiya Panther kit, the one everyone slags off as being really <laughs> The 1969 one, <laughs> I had, I didn't know. <laughs> so I built this and um, sat there looking at it and thinking, well, it needs to be on something. It looks silly just sitting there. Um, I'll make a base or I'll make a diorama. So I Googled how to make dioramas. And uh, as luck would have it on YouTube, I came across all the right people. I saw Night Shift, Adam Wilder, Mike Rinaldi, all of those people, and a whole bunch of English people who aren't as well known. Um, Kathy Millett was one, um, Barbarossa models, and then Laser Creation World, the German guy, who does amazing stuff. He makes it look so easy, too. I, yeah. <laughs> I learned quite a bit from them. 
And then when I was trying to do figures, because I hadn't done figures, I started looking at other sources. So I was looking at the miniature painters. And then I started going down rabbit holes, looking at the stuff that they would build from just scrap around the house. And I had one incident where I had to have a COVID test before I went in for a sleep apnea test. So back in the early days of COVID, they, I'd have to isolate at home for five days. So I was in a room for five days, gathered together loads of stuff from our recycling, and I built a diorama which is on my YouTube page. It's all zombies and stuff, but it came out fairly well. But that's that's where I'm at now. I just keep building. I can't stop building. And my head is full of ideas all the time. Um, I wish I had two pairs of hands. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what we've noticed for sure. And I didn't realize that you were kind of a COVID modeler. Yeah, I, I had a 40-year gap. <laughs> yeah. So, and a lot of us, a lot of us have had that, but I, you know, I, it just never really clicked for me that you'd only been building, I mean, again, for a couple of years, really. So yeah. that makes, that makes your progress even more remarkable because, you know, we've noticed, we noticed, we've noticed your work and, and seen how your skills have developed and, and your enthusiasm is palpable. And the, you know, one thing that's really strong with your stuff is the storytelling. I mean, you're, you know, you, I think you're just a natural diorama guy. Right. Thank you. I, I love the storytelling aspect of it. And the same way with weathering, you might do that in layers. I like having my story in layers. So there'll be an obvious main story, but I like to try and reward the viewer. The longer you look, the more things you see. And I like to hide little things away like Easter eggs. I just did um, one that was on the Battle of the Bulge, and it was um, actually a replica of a photograph, very famous photograph of a knocked-out Jagdpanzer IV, and it's knocked out by the 3rd Armoured Division, so it said, Spearhead got this too bad. And it's fine just to replicate that, that's cool, but I wanted to add more, so I had the soldiers who did the graffiti hanging around the vehicle still. I had a you know, a bucket, the traditional bucket, the bucket with uh, paint <laughs> on the side. I had a guy being filmed by a newsreel guy for folks back at home. I had uh, two guys who were looking at uh, the German crew that were under tarpaulins. You know, one of them looking kind of victorious and the other looking at them like, well, shit, that could have been me. Um, and just all these little side stories going on that you only see if you sit down and look at. And I, when I take some of these down to our local club, one of the guys there, Sean, anytime I bring down a diorama, he will pull up a chair and sit down with his arms folded and he will just look at this thing for 20 minutes, <laughs> just picking out all the little Easter eggs. And that's that's fun for me. I really enjoy that. Which kit did you use for that one? So the the Jagdpanzer was the um, Tamiya. The newer yeah, Tamiya kit, yeah. Yeah, it was the Tamiya one, um, not the new one, the old one, because that's the wrong the wrong version. Um, it was really hard because it's a really popular photo, but there's so little information on the internet about it. 99% mm. of people say it is the Battle of the Bulge, and it's obviously the 3rd Armoured Division who knocked it out. But no one could pin down a location. No one could tell me exactly what happened or how it got knocked out. So just trying to do detective work from it, I could see that there was a section of roof on the ground. So the top had blown off. Now, there was no damage to the side of the tank that you can see. 
So the damage must have either been on the other side or someone dropped something in it. Don't know, but the roof was blown off. Um, you can see the ammunition is cooked off because above the tracks, you can see where some of the casemate has blown downwards. Mm -hmm. And the way that the black charring is, you can tell that the, there was an explosion and a fire inside. So I just worked on that basis and I made my damage from the other side. I mean, if you see the diorama for real, you can see there's holes on the other side. But it meant I had to build an interior as well. So scratch building, Chris. You scratch built that. <laughs> I okay. had to find. I didn't know if you took it from another kit. Or... Yeah. No, I didn't have another kit to use. Um, and when I looked online, the um, the closest I could find was a Valinda one. It was about seventy dollars, and I'm like, well, I'm not doing that. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, you probably scratch. saved yourself seventy dollars worth of frustration. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just by doing it yourself. Were you able to find any other photos of this besides, obviously, the most famous view? No, I, I literally, Tracy, I spent months mm. searching it. I went to every Bat of the Bulge group that I could find and asked them. I even wrote to Bat of the Bulge museums wow. out in the Bastogne area. Nobody had any information about this. Usually the best way to get more photos is to finish the model. Yeah, absolutely. Because then someone will go, <laughs> yeah. aha, I think that's wrong because yeah. of this. <laughs> <laughs> where were you six months ago <laughs> yeah well nobody has so far so <laughs> really nobody knows it's a mystery so uh, where can people go I, uh, I mean I know the answer to this but where can people go to check out all your work Martin so I've got I didn't want to keep bugging my my regular Facebook friends with all this modeling so I started a separate page and it's called MD Scale Models, but it's spelled E M double E Scale Models. So it's phonetic spelling of my initials. Um, e I've got D the same name right? on my um, Instagram, and it's just Martin Drayton on um, YouTube. I've made a few videos of builds that I've done, mm. but um, we got this actually the laptop I'm on now. We got this new laptop, and between my wife and my daughter using it, I wasn't getting a look in. So I'm a bit behind. Yeah, I didn't know you were that you had a YouTube channel. How can we find that? That's just under Martin Drayton. Okay. Gonna have to go check that out. Yeah, I have to ask because I'm doing it myself at the moment. How did you do the peeling paint on this one? All right. So I've had a few people ask that. And it was kind of, it was more or less a happy accident. What I did was, when I was airbrushing the whole tank, I had the roof on there with white glue. And I spilled some of the white glue over. And I thought about peeling it off at that point before I started spraying. And I thought, well, let me leave it and see what happens. Because I had um, a primer layer underneath the red oxide primer. So I thought, well, at the very least, that'll show through. A bit like the um, hairspray technique. So when I took the roof off and I peeled it off slowly, it left a lip of paint. So left that behind. It's a lot less complicated than my method. Do <laughs> <laughs> for yours. What kind of paint was it? Um, that was. Let me think. Scale colors acrylic, I think. Because the type of paint, I think, makes a big difference. Right. I think if you did that with a lacquer, it wouldn't work. Yeah. Right. It would just no. chip and break yeah. off. Chris Martin asked right. how you how you were doing yours. What I did was I sprayed uh, paint on a piece of cellophane, and then I peeled it um, off in strips and stuck. And it's yeah. it's ammo paint, so basically it's shit paint. 
but it's very rubbery. So uh, it, <laughs> right. you could peel it off, pose it, and then I put a little bit of, um, just to make the, sort of the edge of where it's torn, and then a little bit of right. uh, Tamiya Extra Thin melts it into the paint underneath to wow. get rid of the, the edge of it along the bottom and then spray yeah, up joint. to it to, to get the colour. That's very cool. But also um, to get the bubble paint effect on the, the whole thing underneath. Lester Plaskett suggested I got a sponge and used um, masking fluid um, yeah. and dabbed it on and then spray over it and then it looks like it's bubbled. So that's Lester's trick. Yeah, I did that on a on an M47. I mm. tried that on the front. That worked okay. Yeah, it seems like one of those things where there's probably a half dozen different ways to do it that all look pretty good, but that looks you, great. Whatever you did, it mm, looks yeah, it really did, looks legit for sure. Yeah, thank you. Nice burning on the rear. So yeah, I think well. there is a picture of the damage on the other side, so so you can actually see what what I had oh, kind right. of extrapolated three hits on that side. Yeah, I think that's legit. I mean. Nobody can prove you wrong, right? Yeah, that's the good yeah, thing. If there's only one photo, yeah. <laughs> put it on the other side. <laughs> I mean, we really, we really have to do a lot of extrapolation when you know yeah. when you're trying to go off of a of a historic photo because it's rare that you get good views from all the angles, and you know, even if it's just trying to figure out what the other wing might look like yeah you've got to be able to use those those creative skills but having a lot of reference photos to feed that and inform that is important although when you do start a project and start doing your research and on the the rare times when the stars align and you get photos from every single side it's like christmas every day yeah um the copy that i built like, for whatever reason, I guess it was a unique vehicle, but it was well-documented with tripod photos from all sides. I was able yeah. to find, like, really clear, fantastic photos from all sides, and that just doesn't ever happen. <laughs> yeah, I don't often model exact situations and photographs, so um, most of the time it's just stuff from my imagination. Um, so it's, it's pretty rare that I actually use a photo to do stuff, but it was, it was fun to do because I had a, you know, an absolute roadmap of what I was trying to do, how I was going to make it look and so on. Did that make the process easier? Um, yes, it was easier, but it was more restrictive. I couldn't do everything that I would, might want to do because it wasn't there, but that's why I then expanded the whole scene. And I really could do what I wanted because in, you know, the historical photo is there. It's just the tank in front of the building. It's up to me. I could add two other vehicles coming in behind a bunch of soldiers, more stories. Yeah. Sometimes that's a bit of a conundrum where there are things that you would like to do with the paint or just creatively. And if you're just a slave to that one photo, it might seem like, you know, and it's, but, Sometimes you just gotta say, "Yeah, whatever." I've I've yeah. got that problem with this with this little PZL thing um, mm -hmm. that I'm that I'm doing because I I mean I don't want to get invested in the thing. I don't want to do a bunch of research, but I want to do an interesting paint scheme. Yeah, and there's basically two <laughs> that are included in the kit. Yeah, I mean because it's either brown or brown. Yeah, <laughs> but. There's a uh, there's a Romanian one that's that's got a pretty neat scheme, but I really like the look of the Polish 
red and white checkerboard insignia. Yeah, that cool insignia. Yeah, and there's only one of those that's included with the kit that's got a multicolor paint scheme. And I'm like, well, I'm going to do that. But there's actually a bunch of photos of that one because it's it was crashed. And nobody really knows if it was like if the Germans grabbed it and painted it with their own camo or what. Anyway, there's a bunch of photos and none of them show the insignia on the top of the wing. Right. I'm like, well, that's not very fun. <laughs> so I'm going to just pretend that they had them on there before it crashed. Yeah, <laughs> and, artistic license. And, and Why then not they took them, the serial number, and then they took them off. Well, I could, I, I might do that as well. I mean, I, I, you know, I like to, I like to do some of that as well. So, but you need then to put that your number means, in there, man. I know, I, so I could make it, I could make it white nineteen instead of white three, and I, I very well may end up doing that. It's just I have to convince myself that I'm going to cut some masks on a kit where I said I was not doing any of that. <laughs> Mission creep again. <laughs> it's what happens. It's, that's yeah. exactly how it happens. Yep, yep, mission creep. That's a perfect way to put it. The other problem with modeling historical photos sometimes is it turns into a game of spot the difference. That when you post it, yeah. people are like, oh, that's slightly wrong, or that's slightly wrong, because they've got something yeah. too directly to compare it to. Yeah. You also do things based on TV and films sometimes. Is that a big source of inspiration for you? Yeah, that that was kind of I say early on in my career. Um, it's like <laughs> a year ago. Um, so yeah, I it was just the way things happened. I was getting inspiration from different places, and um, my wife and I had watched. Well, I, obviously, I had watched Band of Brothers loads of times, mm-hmm. and we were going to go to Normandy because my daughter's school was asked to provide a band for the seventy fifth anniversary celebrations so we were going to go and um julie and i hadn't been super interested in really in that part of world war ii until i showed her that series and she was so into it and so hooked and i thought you know what i want to make a diorama about these guys so i did um have a look at the tv show and a lot of the times i get ideas from just scouring the internet looking at figures and you know like you guys like to say they they talk to you i mean i see figures and i think that would make a really good scene if i could use this one that from that company that from that company and i get the ideas that way and i did that with the band of brothers diorama and that one ironically was very similar to a photo a still photo from the tv series um other things i've done uh battlestar galactica which you yeah, guys will fun. probably know. A lot of people won't. Yeah, that's the uh, yeah, did a Viper, Band of Brothers one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I did a Viper. And uh, that was my first sci-fi kit, actually. And good fun. But again, there is like a law in existence already. I couldn't go too crazy mm-hmm. with doing different stuff. I was just happy that you did the old school Viper instead of you know, yes. yeah. <laughs> some abomination from that. That's new, like the new... seven, especially. No. <laughs> yeah. 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 The old, the, the OG Vipers and the Cylon Raiders. I mean, that's, yeah. that's that it's just never going to be cooler than that. I had uh, the Cylon Raider toy where you pull the wings apart and it had spring loaded torpedoes. Yeah. And you press the buttons and they shoot. I love that thing. I vividly remember flying around the house with that thing shooting at everything. <laughs> what kit was that, Martin? The, the so 
that, let me think, uh, Mobius. Right. Uh, and that was um, one of the first kits I took away to build on the road. Um, I'm a flight attendant and generally I don't have a lot of spare time. So especially in the winter when I'm teaching snowboarding and I'm flying and I'm trying to find time for modeling. So I realized that on my layovers, this was just wasted time. This is time I could be building. So I started looking at ways to do it. And right now I'm sitting at our kitchen table. This is where I build. Um, so I'm used to clearing stuff up and putting it away or putting it on a tray and moving it somewhere else. So I'm used to my stuff being mobile. So it wasn't a huge stretch to pack it into my lunch bag, for example, that I travel with and take stuff with me. And that Mobius kit lent itself perfectly because it, um, there's a guy called John Bias who does um, lots of videos, great stuff. Um, he had built one and he built it in a modular fashion. He built it in sections. And I thought, well, that's going to work for me because I could work on each bit while I'm away without putting the whole thing together and making it hard to transport. And I did 80% of that build on the road. And since wow, then... Wow, that's pretty impressive. Every single build I have done since then, some of that build has been done in a hotel room. You and, and Shane Doak, because he's been doing, he's, he, he travels around a lot on his yeah. job and he's been doing some yeah. of that as well. But how do you, how do you deal with the airbrushing parts? So the air, I save it to do the airbrushing at home. I did think about getting one of those uh, USB ones, but I, I don't know if I wanted to get into all of the spraying and in you know, a hotel room and stuff. And I, you know, it's, I'm, but that might not be a bad idea. Our, um, our buddy John Colasante actually bought one of those because, you know, peop- uh, all of the all of the real modelers oh. just 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 shit all over those things whenever somebody posts them, right? Because they, uh-huh. I, I don't know if they were made for cake decorators or makeup artists or whatever, but yeah, or do nails. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but John is like me; he's a, an incurable find out for yourself tester and he bought one and he said it actually worked pretty good right yeah i mean oh. yeah so, I, it, it's the way i do it i i plan my bills really really in detail so i'll get a page of notes on my phone and i will go through every single step of the build i'll write it out and over the course of time, I'll readjust the order maybe, but it means that I know exactly what I need to do at what stage. So there's no lost time at the bench. If I sit down, if I've got 10 minutes, there's something on that list I can do. So it's always moving forward and it's never getting stuck. I don't lose motivation. And it means that I can plan what I can do on my layover. So I might have the next five steps done. When I come back, airbrush the outside of it when i go away again next stage is weathering and i'll do the weathering while i'm away so it's 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 use of time it's just using my time as well as i can damn that's organization yeah you're clearly a good a good project manager yeah (laughs) only in this aspect of my life however (laughs) (laughs) well that's the only one we're talking about right now so that (laughs) sucks is this a 148 scale it is yeah 
Hold on, we, we should tell them what we're talking about because Yeah, we're looking at the Viper yeah. diorama on our in our picture sharing thing. Um which we'll post in our on the with the, with the, the podcast. Show but yeah, where did you get the figure? Because I mean I could see some of them being kind of generic, but the picture of Apollo or the figure of Apollo, that's very specific. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> the the kit is one thirty second scale. So that for just from the word go makes it hard to find figures. Yeah. Um, oh, it's I had a couple second. of okay. uh, Verlinden um, German guys who were supposed to be working on a tank, and being Verlinden and supposedly one thirty thirty fifth, they are actually close to one thirty second. <laughs> so that's the two <laughs> Verlinden working on. Yeah, they are. They look like they've been fed. I don't know what. <laughs> Good <laughs> American they, boys. They're the two working on the um, on the ship. And then the other two I found on Shapeways. They're 3D printed. Mm. So okay. I ordered those wow. up. They're not the best um, made figures. Shapeways. Maybe not the best painted either, but, but yeah, yeah they were. There's a, there's a reason people call it Shitways. I'm just saying. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they're not, they're their, not their technology, honestly, I don't know how those guys are. are, are, are I mean, I, I suppose it's because the vast majority of their customers are not model makers and super picky like we are, but their technology is just way behind even the $300 printer that you can buy, to, you know, to put on your own workbench. There's CDs in a download world now. Yeah, exactly. After that, um, I came across a company called Cosmic Models who actually do the figures and they look a lot better, but I'd already done it by then, so... Isn't that the way it goes, though? You, you, yeah. find, that, you find that stuff when it's too late. But, I, I mean, you... Okay, I have to insert my my thing about 3D design and 3D 3D printing. I mean, for the stuff you're doing... <laughs> it just seems... I'll just have a nap for you then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. But it just seems like such a natural fit for what you're doing. I mean, do you feel like you might go down that road? Um, 30 probably minutes not. In. <laughs> the Will Vangelist is out again. Yeah, I'm just saying, you know, with your level saying. of creativity and enthusiasm, I just imagine that you do a lot. I, of cool in stuff. an ideal world, I would like to, but I don't have either the space or the or the cash to actually go down that route at the moment. Yeah, Maybe sometime in the future, but you know, it's like when uh, when you have friends who learn to drive. They all want to drive you everywhere. So right now, I know a bunch of people who have 3D printers, and they want to print everything. So it's great. Don't let them. Yeah, 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 they're having fun, and I'm getting my stuff printed. So yeah, symbiosis. Yes. Well, we'll I'm, check I'm, back I'm, in it. We'll, we'll check back in a year. I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if we if if we find out that. You started taking your laptop with you on flights, and you got Fusion 360, and getting other people <laughs> to print stuff for you. And well, if I go that route, you'll be the first to know, Will, because I'll come and see you. Yeah, there you go. There you go. But I, I, have to, I have to ask, this is a little bit of an aside. I would have asked this earlier, but you have had a just a really scenic and interesting career path. I mean, the whole, you know, being from 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 the the uk fuck, i can't even no because you're west not from the, you're from the west indies oh. i mean being from the west indies and coming to the united states and because you were basically a professional snowboarder right i mean yeah that's that's like the whole jamaican bobsled thing right <laughs> it's, it's immediately interesting 
I was actually trying a... to qualify for the 2002 games and I got injured and uh, my best friend Paul had already said like he's he's going to be the John Candy character and <laughs> if, you make, if you make it it'll be cool runnings too we'll make a million and yeah. <laughs> But that's immediately an interesting story because it's just so incongruous. So how did you go from being a guy from the West Indies where it's obviously totally tropical to being a professional Olympic quality snowboarder? I mean, that's... So I w- to actually uh, correct you a little, I was actually born in the UK. My parents are from the West Indies, but I have ah, okay. a Trinidad and Tobago passport. Um, ah, okay. Grew up mostly in London. And... Grew up watching a program called Ski Sunday, which Chris probably knows. <laughs> That's the one. And it, um, it, got me, it got my interest peaked. And I was already a skateboarder. Um, I do slalom. I was 2005 world champion. <laughs> I just thought yeah. that. But, <laughs> Very cool. So I wanted to do something on snow and saw this video while I was on vacation that showed very early snowboarding. So I managed to get a chance to do that, found that I picked it up pretty quickly because of the skateboarding. Um, and at that time, there weren't that many people doing it. I think the first British championship had six people in it. Mm. So for many years in the UK, you knew everybody else who snowboarded. Well, <laughs> to that, be fair, all we got is dry ski slopes. It's not, you know, this unless you got money to go to Switzerland every year. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So what I did was I started doing ski seasons because that's one way to do it. So I was getting the time. And then I got into competing and it kind of went from there. Then I, I got into teaching and I'm just, I love imparting information. I love teaching. Um, it runs in the family. My sister is a Tai Chi master, a Sima, rather than Sifu. And um, one of my snowboard clients came to me and said, look, I just had a, a Tai Chi lesson in London. She was amazing. Um, but you and her taught exactly the same way. And then I saw her name. It was your sister. And we've never seen each other teach. That's so. really cool. But yeah, so I came over to the States teaching snowboarding. Um, and it's, That's what brought you over here? That's what brought me here. Oh, wow. And, and working in snowboard retail in the U.S., that's how we and so because so, you, you live you you live in you live in Salt Lake, right? So is we that... live in Park City, so we're about thirty miles from Salt Lake. So okay. I'm up in the mountains, looking at huge piles of snow out my window. Oh, yeah, what super, a tragedy! Super jelly for yeah. a snowboarder. Must be awful. I know. <laughs> You're like, I'm just going to go down to the store. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I forgot something. Right <laughs> back. It's, yeah, it's beautiful. Winter. I got I got to ski at Park City once, and it was it was phenomenal. So yeah, yeah I've got a friend yeah. here in Durham who owns a snowboarding company called Brackish. Ah, pretty small little company, but he went from uh, BMX to snowboarding. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. It's all kind of the action sports thing. I mean, there's Absolutely. lots of guys, lots of guys who made that transition. Yeah, yeah. It's all about yourself off of things and hoping you land. <laughs> yeah. That's Breaking right. Back That's right. Was- was was racing i got into racing because of my slalom racing and skateboarding i got into racing and doing border cross and stuff like that on snow very cool so you're you're a little older much old i think a little a little older than you look well 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 i can say i can say i can say i can say much older than you look because you look so damn young but 
you so you would have been kind of before some of that even like like because what sean white's like in his 40s oh, yeah. now is that right I mean, he's he was a he was a little kid when i was yeah like, so you were pioneering when those guys yeah. were just kind of getting out of <laughs> get out of the way carrot top <laughs> <laughs> well next uh, i think it's like two weeks i'll be 63 no way. Yeah, that's Get the fuck yeah, out of here. That's ridiculous. See, this is what I was saying. You guys were. I'm gonna have to do a screenshot because he looks better than all of us, and he's older than all. Yeah, of us. you guys were. Yeah. You guys were about to get on my case, but I knew that, and it is remarkable. So I thought he was gonna but, say a lot older than me. I thought that's what you were gonna say. I thought you were gonna say a lot older than all of us, and I was like, that can't be true. Yeah, that can't be ten years. Yeah, ten, you got ten. You got ten years on me, and you look ten years younger. It's just it's, not even it's genes. It's it's nothing I've done. I promise you. It's just genes. <laughs> It's all that rarefied air on aeroplanes. Good for the skin. Uh, yeah. The radiation. <laughs> Where can I get me but, some of them chemtrails? Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, sorry to derail, but I've just been fascinated by that. And that's one thing that I was always hoping to ask you, you know, if we got you on here, because it's just such an interesting part of your story. I want to pull us back yeah. to dioramas. Get my blood. Yeah. Okay, what okay. Are you... <laughs> this is a modeling podcast. Yeah, and I have to do that now to because I can't segue back from snowboarding to this smoothly. Um, <laughs> what do you think makes a good diorama? I think uh, a powerful story, um, but it has to be one that is obvious. And I, I'd like to think um, I do dioramas that create emotion, that make people feel something. Um, even just for a moment, um, that they can see the anguish going on or drama that's about to unfold. I did one really big diorama, which is a problem of mine. I did a big diorama of a siege of Budapest, and it's a massive, massive ambush. There's a German tank coming down the road. There are Germans about to go into a building to have a look. There are Russians on the other side of the door. There are Russians around the corner. There are Russians coming up from the uh, from the Danube up the steps, so it's all seconds away from disaster. But you can again lots of separate little stories, um, and even you know, like I said, for the viewer, there's more to see. If you're able to see the backside of the diorama, there's stuff going on in every room in the house. So, lots of stuff. There are people out there who really influenced me in that way of thinking um like peter usher for example mm. with his mind the gap and his yeah. elephant um stuff like that there's um there's a guy whose work i followed um jesse uh, he did one who that was um the 761st uh, tank battalion an all-black unit that people know about the red tails but they don't know about this unit and um they were black tankers who were being trained just as a PR exercise, just to keep the black, black public voting and keep everyone quiet. But after the losses in Normandy, they were so short, they needed to get them out there. Now, they had trained for probably three times the normal length of time that tankers would train, so they were really good. Um, so when they came out, they did make quite an impact. Hancock's no doubt got a book because he's just disappeared off to his bookshelf. Sorry, carry on, Martin. <laughs> Jesse Norton did this diorama called Two Fronts, mm. 
which is self-explanatory. And it's got these black soldiers on the tank with white American soldiers kind of looking surprised as they come by. And I do have a, a 70 fix, 761st diorama planned in the next few next year or so. You've obviously got, got this, right? Move it this way a little bit. Yeah, in that one. And there's there's actually one written by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the mm. basketball player. Really? Yeah. Because he grew up with one of his dad's friends, never talked about the war. And then years and years later, it came out, he was a member of that tank unit. So he's written a book about this guy's experience in World War II. So. I'll look for that. Yeah. So the book that Tracy was holding up for anybody who's interested is called The Black Panthers, right, Tracy? It is. It's by Gina M. DiNicolo, if I am not butchering that too badly. And this yeah. was actually given to me by uh, Marcus Lack whenever I visited him uh, before SMC. He loved the book and knew that I would love it and got me a copy of it. Yeah, um, it's, it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it's just reading through that and reading what they went through in the States before they even came to, the U- to, uh, to Europe. Um, being beaten up, being shot by MPs, local people lynching them. Just crazy, crazy stuff. And then expected to go and fight for that same country. Just madness. Um, there's a guy, I don't know whether you know Daniel Buckmeyer. He does um, some very, very emotive dioramas. He did, um, he's Jewish background, and he did one um, um, that showed a, a mother and a daughter standing at the fence of a concentration camp. Yes. Just hugging I remember that. Yeah. yeah. Um, he's done Black Roses, talking about the Rosie the Riveters, but how a huge proportion of them were actually black. And he's done a really cool diorama of that. He's done one called Thank You with a white soldier thanking a black soldier from the uh, Red Ball Express. You know, stuff like that. I think it's, you can actually build stuff that you enjoy and that's good to do, but also informs people mm. and educates people. Yeah, there are certainly uh, areas of history, even in, you know, military history that are just very uh, neglected, whether intentionally yeah. or, or you know, intentionally in the past, but um, some real heroic stories and real uh, emotional stories that you can get into. Mm. And that's one thing I really like about YouTube is that, you know, growing up as a kid, I followed World War II history and thought I knew a lot of stuff. Um, didn't follow it so much in that 40-year gap. But now, the information that we've got out there is mind-blowing. And also the stuff that we thought was pretty much gospel mm. and is totally wrong. We grew up with a lot of national myths in Britain about World War II, which don't bear much yeah. investigation. Yeah. No, it's, it's great. It annoys me because people like to say they're honouring history with modelling, but they always tell the same thing. It's always guys on a panzer driving around doesn't actually tell you anything about history no there's a lot of no. stories out there to be told that just don't get told yeah yeah i think i think you that that just building a model of a historical subject might in some way be sort of sort of acknowledging history but it's not like what you're doing is next level and it makes me think that one of your challenges i mean you know when you talked about the the uh the tankers from the from the 761st 
you know, driving by the white soldiers and the look of surprise, that's like a next level challenge to try and bring that kind of emotion in at small scale. And, you know, I mean, like Peter Usher is obviously somebody who's managed to figure out how to do that. Um, but that's a pretty high bar. Um, and so like the first thing I'm wondering is, are you, have you gotten into sculpting your own figures? I mean, how, how do you, what's your, what's your path to that? So I've started playing a little bit with reconfiguring figures with, cutting arms off and putting different positions and swapping arms and swapping heads. And that's all it's got to so far. I mean, what I love about all of this is it's given me an artistic outlet, which I didn't actually have before. I didn't even realize that I needed one, Mm. but it's given me that. And, but I don't think I'm at that skill level to start sculpting stuff. We'll see as time goes on. Well, neither Um, was Peter when he first started. Well, I don't know. He might have been born that good, but (laughs) I mean, you know, most most people didn't know how when they started either. Yeah, yeah. And I have to remember that, you know, it's still early days. It's, you know, two, three years that I've been doing it, so... Shouldn't expect too much. Well, of you've, you've been voracious because a lot of yeah, people absolutely. would still be yeah. building the odd tank, but your ambition is just yeah. whoosh. Uh, but the thing is, you back it up as well. It's not like you, you know, you exceed your grasp, so to speak. You, you know, push yourself, and you've come on so fast, so far. Yeah, yeah I really, I really admire your energy and your output. I was, I was watching something yesterday, and the, and this quote came up that said it's a lot more important to just get started than to be an expert. And I mean, you're the embodiment of that. Not, not to say your skills are not good, but you just really seem to be fearless in your willingness to just go for it. And I think a lot of model makers could, could, could learn from that example. They need to be snowboarding. It's It's funny though, because for you to use that word fearless, because some of the guys at my club have been saying the same thing. And it wasn't anything that I thought of. And I didn't think I was doing anything out of the ordinary. They're saying, well, you're just so brave to try stuff. And I'm like, um, it's, I'm just, it's just a plastic model. It's not a big deal. I just go. yeah, just try stuff. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. No one died. I think that's a personal attitude as well. I mean, I don't have it, unfortunately. But if you're the kind of person who, when they see an opportunity, thinks, I'm going to do it. Not, oh, what could go wrong, but I'm just, I'm going to try it. I'll give it a go. Then which it seems to me you might be considering all the risks you've taken in your life and how you took on snowboarding and you know you, you saw opportunities and you went for them and, and other people perhaps are a bit like oh but whatever it goes wrong and uh well if you don't ever do you don't ever find out do you <laughs> yeah well that's yeah. what i was I mean, that's what i was gonna was gonna say because tracy kind of alluded to it and maybe maybe jokingly but i think there's something there uh, you know no i, I was exactly- being serious yeah, exactly what Chris said because because you know as a as a as a motocross guy in my past life, I can totally relate to that 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 sort yeah. of spontaneous you know willingness to just go for it you know fuck around and find out. <laughs> and yeah. It doesn't always pay off, but yeah. you know when it does, you add to your skills and you add to your confidence. And I yeah. really I really do think that that carries over into other parts of, of your life. I mean, that's probably, I mean, you've probably seen that in the way that you deal with things in your personal life, at your work life. I mean, am I, am I right? Yeah, no, I think you're right. That's, that's, I mean, that's I mean when you've, when, when you've been at genuine risk, 
of serious, you know, life changing physical harm, and you some somehow got through it, it does it, tend to alter your perspective on the rest of it. It does, and it, well, it I changes. Mean, first of all, right, you're dumb enough to put yourself in that place. Yeah. <laughs> dumb enough, is, yeah. You're dumb enough. <laughs> <laughs> The, the, the main event that I was competing at last is called Border Cross. And the Border Cross, it's like motocross on a motorbike. I know. I watched it on the X Games. Right. So you've got four or six people going at the same time on a course with jumps, banks, rollers, and so on. And um, people that I ride with, they'll tell you that I'm not really into freestyle. I don't, I'm not one to usually hug myself off jumps and stuff. But there are loads of jumps on the course. But when it's a race situation, I have a completely different mindset. Yeah, you and lose I your mind. Board <laughs> and go as fast as I possibly can. And the last time I won, I won Masters Nationals. Um, there was a, a gap jump that you didn't have to gap, but I did, and I hit it hard. When I got to the finish line and the guy came in second who'd been winning the previous three years, he said, yeah, once I saw you do that, I thought, hey, second's good. <laughs> <laughs> He's crazy. <laughs> but, you know, but as you say, well, after something like that, you have confidence and it does change aspects of your life. But also you find out what you can do. So yeah. that gives you more confidence to tackle those you things. You certainly find out what's possible. To do it. Yeah. You know? Did, so, uh, just curious, did that, did uh, gapping that set of doubles, did that shave any time off? Oh, yeah. <laughs> First place, baby. <laughs> the thing was, I landed in the back seats immediately in front of another bend, managed to hang on because my legs are strong, and that shot me out of that next bend as well. So, that was it. I was gone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there you go. Well, and yeah. the other thing that it does, too is on the other end it, it it helps you get comfortable with the idea that at a certain point your skills and your willingness to put yourself at risk it has a limit right like you you have like it's like the guy who got second he's clearly you know he's at a point where he's like look I'm just not taking that risk it's not worth it yeah yeah. And I, I think that's an important thing in life too, to be able to, to know, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and be okay with it and not, yeah. and I mean, because I'm sure that you've, you know, uh, can relate to the feeling of going home from the track, feeling like you're just, you know, a piece of shit because you're not willing to, to huck the new jump that the, mm. that the other guys are. And you have to learn to separate yourself from that to, to maintain a healthy ego. And uh, yeah. I, I yeah. think that's important in other, in other parts of your life as well. I haven't reached a point with, with uh, my modeling yet where I thought, oh, no, I don't want to try that. I don't want to do that. It's, yeah, why not? Well, it's great modeling. What's the worst that could happen? You can ruin a model. Yeah, yeah exactly. So what, get another one. It's like the saying, did you die? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's really not that serious. And this is kind of for those guys that you will occasionally hear say, you know, I'm just never going to be that good or I just don't even want to try or I don't really want to uh, uh, risk this expensive kit. I'm going to, you know, wait till my skills are better, you know. Yeah. Gotta, I, I'm waiting for my skills to catch up with my imagination, hmm. but I'm still going to try stuff in the meantime. I mean, yeah, because you're not going to get there if you don't. Yeah. I'd like to be painting 
figures, you know, that are just, you know, outstanding. I'd like to be sculpting like Tasting Harms and, you know, and building armor like Sam Dwyer, but, you know, it's not going to happen tomorrow. Well, it's certainly not going to happen if you're only, if you're yeah. only wishing for it, too. Yeah. Like, yeah. any figure painter will tell you the best way to get better is to paint more figures. Paint more. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, pay yeah. attention, get good, le- you know, get good lessons from the people who are putting stuff out on YouTube and, and things like that, and then apply those things. But I feel like a lot of people, they they hear the lesson and they just think, well, I'm never going to be that good. Like, mm-hmm. you haven't yeah. even picked up a brush. Like, you haven't even started the journey. Like, you're, you are never going to be that good unless you try. And the, you know. But I think it was Nelson Mandela who said, either I win or I learn. And it's, yeah. it's a good way to be. You know, every time I build something, paint something, either it got better or I learned something from it. So the next one will be better. It's to win-win. Let's see how it goes. So, Martin, do you feel like you... Um, we've talked about this before and I'm just wondering like for somebody who's as ambitious and sort of fast moving as you have you hit plateaus like do you feel like you hit a place where you're like oh I can do this a lot better and I'm comfortable with that and now I'm going to kind of push this or are you just moving so fucking fast that you, you missed them <laughs> <laughs> I, I haven't really felt that I've hit any plateaus yet um you know, I'll give an example. Uh, when I first started doing dioramas, I had, and you were talking about TV and movies, I used to enjoy the Resident Evil series, film series. They're awful films, but they're entertaining. Yeah. And I wanted to build a Resident Evil diorama. Well, from about my third diorama, it was going to be three separate floors, two undergrounds, lighting, the whole deal, 150 zombies, you know, 30 combat figures, which are all painted, by the way. Um, and I said, I had to stop myself and go, no, 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 not yet. This is not. And now I look at it and I want to go back and do that one day. Mm. And I look at all those figures that I've painted and they're nowhere near the figures I'm painting now. I can't use any of them. They all look like zombies, even the ones that aren't. (laughs) (laughs) Zombie clowns. Yeah. So, um. Yeah, things are moving quickly, and I'm and I'm enjoying that they are. Um, if I hit a plateau, I hit a plateau. But and I originally was just a one model at a time builder. I would only do one thing at a time, focus on one thing, and that's you know it made sense to me. But once I started doing the hotel stuff, that wasn't feasible anymore because builds would get to a point where they were too fragile to transport. So I'd have to write that one I have to finish off at home. But I've got a trip coming up and I've got a 30-hour layover and it's nowhere interesting. I want to build something, so I'll start something else. So usually I have like three builds on the go now at any one time. Um, I've got two that are stalled because I'm just waiting for stuff to arrive. That's why I'm pushing on with the dragon. And then there's a group build starting that I can't start until the 1st of May. So as soon as that date passes, that'll go away with me. Hotel, so well, you also like your time, isn't it? Well, and he's also organized enough that, like, starting a new kit isn't, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, sort of a diversion, like, it'll actually get finished at some point. Yes, I feel like for a lot of people, I I have I literally have one shelf queen, and that's only because it didn't fit together very well, and I put it to one side, and I will go back to it, but 
that's the only one. Nothing else is stalled. So. I feel like that the hotel thing could really lend itself to working on your figure game. I mean, because yeah. that's a you know that's a small thing to take with you. Yeah, really you easy a, to transport. That's that's yeah, where I did this, guys. I did these yeah, in a hotel. Small, small, small. You know, just a few brushes and some paints. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's. Do you struggle with lighting in hotel rooms? I was just going to say, ironically, yeah. the lighting's usually better <laughs> because <laughs> because there's you there's always a desk, there's always a table, and um, the lamp is literally right over it. Um, I was at a hotel recently, and it was the best light I've ever seen. It was L shaped, and I've got one here that's L shaped, and the and the light is at the top. This one had the light down the side as well. So it was just so I actually turned it upside down and looked up details and looked it up. You can't buy them in quantities of less than a hundred because no. <laughs> they're for hotels. <laughs> Why do I feel like one lamp is going to be in the the luggage on the way in and a different lamp is going to be in the luggage on the way out? No, I never thought of that at all. <laughs> do you find it? It helps with your job because it must be kind of a lonely job sometimes when you've got a layover. And I guess probably when people start, they go drinking or whatever, but I imagine that wears off pretty quick. People people are surprised to know how lonely a job being a flight attendant is. They assume you're around people all the time. You've got fun crews and that does happen sometimes. But especially since COVID, things have changed because before it was quite common that you'd get to a hotel and one person would go, oh, I'm going to go to the bar or I'm going to go to this restaurant. Does anyone want to go? And you go out as a group and have a fun evening, fine. But with, with the lockdown, people stopped doing that and they haven't really got back in the habit. Um, in the past, they would have labelled you a, what they call a slam clicker if you got to your hotel room and shut the door and that was it. <laughs> but now, pretty much everybody slam clicks. For me, I've got something to do in my room now. <laughs> I'm not sitting there just watching Netflix. I'm making stuff. Yeah. It's also uh, sort of, it's time that you forced to be in this hotel room that you've actually found a, a good use for. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, you can either, you can either be a veg and lay there on the, on the bed watching shitty TV, or yeah. you can make, you know, productive use yeah. of the time. I mean, even if it's watching historic YouTube videos or, or whatever. Yeah. And, and so many of them now, more and more of them actually have streaming in the room. So I can have modeling YouTube on while I'm doing stuff. It's great. It could be a whole channel, the, 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 just about just about hotel mm-hmm. hotel modeling. I mean, yeah, it's uh, there's there's an there's an underserved niche there for sure. Yeah, and I mean the job has has helped as well because, uh, for example, there was a competition um, in Las Vegas that I wanted to go to last year, um, and. If you go by plane, I can't take very much, and especially as I build dioramas, stupidly. I can't take a lot of stuff. <laughs> but um, a friend was going to drive there, and I picked up a trip that gave me 24 hours in Vegas. So he drove my kits there, and I flew there, and I just went down to the competition on the day. Spent the day there, flew home, and he drove my stuff home. There you go. So, yeah. Very cool. Are you going to go to the Nationals and thing in Texas? Yes, I am. Outstanding. Good, good yeah. deal. Will you be there? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's the closest sure. it ever gets to my house, so I'm yeah. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna waste that opportunity for sure. 
it'll be even more fun than my first time last year because I, you know, there'll be some, be you know, be more people that I'm looking forward to hanging out with. So it'll be good. Yeah, there's a good crew of people there. Yeah, there's just like I I mean I seriously I'm jealous of your willingness to just go for it because I have I have diorama love, but I ain't got diorama skills and the I the thing that keeps me from even going there is that gap between what's available for with figures and what I would want to be able to tell the little stories that I would think would be cool. Mm. And I'm you know, I don't know that I'm ever going to get there because I don't know that I'm going to just go for the figure sculpting thing. I can't even paint the damn things, much less build them. So. Well, you're looking at it backwards. Martin looks <laughs> for the figures and then uses them to decide the story. Yeah, so you know, I know. I mean, I, I, that's that what way. I'm saying. I have, I have the wrong attitude yeah. about it, and I recognize that. And I'm, 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 I'm hey, jealous. Hey, there's no brakes on a snowboard. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> have you got that on a license plate or something? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You have um, some kind of reputation in scale modeling. Um, it would be very hard for you to switch to some other aspect of it that you don't have experience in without people going, oh, he's not that good, is he? That That's pressure. The biggest problem you have well, is I people don't, don't, yeah, I don't, don't want to accept that you're doing something different. I still get people that call me a ship yeah. modeler because I built some ships and say that I build Churchills even though I haven't touched one for two years and stuff. People like to pigeonhole you in this hobby. Yeah, I think yeah. that's a I think that's a fair that's a fair comment that I think does probably keep some guys from from trying stuff. Yeah, I personally don't give yeah. a shit. Yeah. I, 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 think... I couldn't I couldn't care less. But I think that that's important to acknowledge if that's what's keeping you from trying stuff is you know get some get you know get 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 fewer fucks man get some nuts just do it <laughs> don't let yeah absolutely I mean. Like for me, my issues with trying new stuff is my, is my issues with myself, my own problems with perfectionism. I don't really give a shit, you know, about anybody else unless it's somebody that I know I can really learn from. That's important right. to me. But even if they say, no, bro, you just totally didn't get it done. I'm not going to let that stop me. Just embrace the suck. Just know that when you try Absolutely. something new, it's going to suck. But you know what? It's going to get Absolutely. good really quick. Yeah, that's. I'm glad you brought that up because you might be able to relate to this, Martin. In your snowboarding journey, was there ever a moment where, like, when you were young and frisky and and knew that you had some talent and you were, you know, going bigger and and harder than than the other than the other guys, where you had to, like, just stop and say, okay, I'm actually not that good compared to where I want to be and just get next to that. It's weird because um, I kind of stopped worrying about that. And I, I know it's ironic, but I think I'm actually riding better now than at any other stage of my life. And I think that's come down to knowledge and experience and technique 
have developed to a point where I'm using a lot less energy than people around me, more effectively, more efficiently, I still have that little voice in my head that's like, go on, you can go a bit faster. It's all right. It's okay. I mean, a couple of years ago, there's a, all right, there's a guy I ride with who, um, he is now 27. We've been riding together for 10 years. He can outride 90% of the snowboard school. When he comes out, we just hang out and we ride for four or five days. And I always use him as a benchmark to where I'm at physically. He's 27. We go full bore all day for five days. Uh, a couple of years ago, we hit 73 mile an hour on a run. Out of the way, no one there. But he's the one that I push it with. And as long as I ride with him, it keeps me at that level. And even at the age I'm at now, when we go out as snowboard instructors and go out to ride, I have full set instructors saying to me, I don't know how you accelerate as much as you do. I don't know how you do what you're doing. So it's still there. I still feel it. Um, I don't think I've plateaued there either. So. <laughs> but that thing that those, that those other guys are doing when they come to you and say, I, I don't understand. That's the thing that I'm talking about, where you can fully acknowledge for yourself, you can accept the fact that you don't understand, that, that you suck. And the only <laughs> way that you're ever going to grow is to admit that and be cool with that. Because once you do that, it's like liberating. It's like, yeah. okay, now you're free from your ego and you can actually grow. Yeah, and I think that's what happened as far as my snowboarding went. So, Martin, speaking of snowboarding and modeling, did you experience discrimination uh, in snowboarding? And I know we know that you experienced some discrimination in modeling, but do you want to talk about how the the, the parallels and the differences of, of how you've been accepted in each one of these things that you love so much? Okay, yeah. but, but, before, but before you answer that, because I think maybe some people who are listening and can't see and don't know Martin are not clear, Martin's a black guy which he's less <laughs> yeah i mean that's that but martin's picture will be on the uh the announcement it will be it will be but that's that's true but the point being is that i mean i don't think it's unfair to say that that puts you at an even greater position of minority in the snowboarding community i mean that community is white as fuck snow. right white as snow the snow <laughs> come on it was right there and you walked right yeah, past i had one job oh, hang on, my cat's passing by yeah don't say yeah and i don't i mean i don't think i don't think that the scale modeling community is probably a whole lot different right i mean no you know not at all. the other day when when we were when i was on with the on the bench guys, um, you know, Julian and Dave got into a discussion about being a, you know, a hobby for old white guys. Yeah. So uh, I, I just wanted to make that really clear that, you know, why Tracy is, is asking that because it is a thing you've, you've had some and, and, and been public about it. And this is what we want to talk about. You've had some, let's call it interesting experiences, uh, you know, modeling while black. Yeah. And um, it is interesting. I, I have had issues in, in both arenas and they are both very white activities, both of them, very. Um, on snow, um, 
it did come as a shock to me because, and it was funny, I was at um, an event last night where they were talking about diversity in winter sports and uh, they passed me the microphone. They may have regretted it, but I let them, <laughs> let them know. Let them have it. But, um, <laughs> yes. Be careful what you so, ask. Um, in Europe, it wasn't ever a problem. It wasn't a factor and it wasn't even anything that was vaguely in my head that, oh, I'm the only black person out here. I'm one of few. Didn't even occur to me. It wasn't a thing. No one made it a thing. Um, I didn't suffer any prejudice because of it until I came to the States. That's when it changed. And um, I'll give you an example. There was a, a guy turned up at the private lesson office and they're paying a lot of money for lessons. And he said, look, I don't want some kid in baggy pants calling me, dude, I'm paying a lot of money. I want a top instructor. We want a good lesson. So they said, fine, we'll give you Martin. So they sent him out to, uh, to where we meet for lessons came to my supervisor and said, I'm looking for someone called Martin. I start walking up and I see his face change. And as I get to him, I put my hand out to shake his hand. And he looks at my supervisor and says, is this some kind of joke? Wow. Yeah. And the supervisor turned to him and said, well, he trained all of these instructors, so you'll get a good lesson. So the guy said, well, turned to me and said, all right, we'll go then. Um, I don't want a lesson from you. Just show us around the mountain. We start riding around. His son is falling over, trying to do tricks, trying to do 180s. So I turn to the son and say, look, just do this, this, and this. Turn your head, you'll be fine. He does one, lands it, says to his dad, dad, that's the first one I've ever landed. The father um, turns to me and goes, so um, if you see me doing anything wrong, just can you let me know? Fast forward 20 minutes, it's a full-blown lesson. Me demoing, videoing, them doing stuff. We get to the bottom at the end of the lesson. He rides up to the supervisor with a $100 bill in his hand and goes, that was the best lesson of any kind I've ever had. It goes to hand it to me and says, I need to book you tomorrow. And I just said, I'm not available. Didn't take his money and just walked away. Nice. But that kind of thing does happen. Less so now. But when I first got to Utah, it was Utah's <laughs> not the most diverse state anyway. Yeah, Utah's, it's the, Utah's, it's more the yeah, whiter of the yeah. white states. <laughs> yes. 0.5% yeah. African-American. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, um, I mean, yeah. Mm, yeah. There's some, there's some in places terms of, that we could go with that for sure. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but in terms of modeling, um, my first experience was I went to the Nationals in Las Vegas just to spectate. I, because using my flight benefits, just flew down for the day. I was going to have a look around, fly home. And I walked in there and it was funny. The Uber dropped me off and the Uber driver was clearly this was her part-time job and she was uh, some kind of exotic dancer by the way she was dressed. Young girl. And uh, as we pulled up, <laughs> there were all these middle-aged and older white guys going into this building and she looked at me and turned back and looked at them and looked at me again and she said is this the right place <laughs> yeah. yeah it's the right place so i went in and um was surprised by the fact that i tried to start conversations with a few people they'd turn they'd look me up and down and then just walk away and then i had someone walk up to me and say um what are you doing here? Do you actually build models? Ooh. You know, I, 
wow. <laughs> really? You. I paid my yeah. money. I get in. Yeah. You don't I get wish to ask me questions. My, I I, and I'm thinking at that right point, there. this is probably my one and only visit to nationals, and I'm going to go back to just building on my own. And then I met a guy called Steve Munsell mm. from Value Gear. Oh, he's yes. awesome. Steve nice guy. Fucking yep. Super nice kid. guy. He's awesome. Makes yeah. cool stuff, too. Yeah. And he was so cool and so welcoming. And then I met Andy from Andy's Hobby Headquarters, whose videos I'd watched. And he was even more excited in person than he is on the videos. <laughs> is that possible? And then I met the guys. <laughs> yeah, it is possible. <laughs> I thought his head was going to explode. But... <laughs> and then, uh, I met the guys from the Plastic Posse, I met Scott Gentry, and I was like, okay, there's some cool people here. This is all right. And I stuck around. Now, I noticed on my modeling Facebook page that I was getting different reactions when I had a profile picture that showed me to a profile picture of my models. That was interesting to me. And like, at one you, point, can, can you, can you, can you, I mean, I'm just curious. Can you give us an example? Yeah. So, um, I had posted something and this guy made, um, a hypercritical comment. I mean, all right. If you didn't think it was great, fine, but you don't have to tell me that way. And he said, calm down, LeBron. Oh, <laughs> fuck. <laughs> Okay, Adolf. And this was what on this was the a, fuck? on someone else's page. Yeah, it was. Uh, wow. Okay. And and you can't. I mean, there's no way to twist that into well. LeBron's the king. I mean, he's really good. Yeah. Yeah. It just yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. Tell me you're white without showing me your profile picture. Tell me you're in a red yeah. cap. Tell, without show me your red cap. Well, without yeah. even going there, just tell me you're fucking <laughs> oblivious. That you have <laughs> no social skills whatsoever. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, you know, I know a lot of it's political, and I, uh, uh, but, but I, I think it's all ignorance. It, it's all ignorance, yeah. and and I think that it, it's. I mean, I, I want to be. This sounds like I'm being generous, but I'm really not because I do think sometimes it is just a matter of being oblivious. Like dudes are yeah. just liter, literally just clueless. I mean, women will tell you this all the time, that it's a disease yeah. with, with us. If you've got balls, chances are you're just not getting something. <laughs> what upsets me, though, is I've not had one experience like this, not one in my life. Mm. So mm. it just, you know, why is that? Because I'm a okay, white guy. Wait, why, <laughs> you know? Yeah, right. And I, and I didn't have them, to be fair, until I came to the U.S., that's a hard fact. That surprises me. <laughs> yeah. It's because you don't live well, here. Well, I grew up in the 60s and 70s in England, and I left there, um, I guess, before the before the 2000s. Um, so things have changed since then in the UK because of various situations with Europe and refugees and so on. So I wasn't subject to any of that at the time. So at the time I was growing up, wasn't a big deal but i remember the jokes and the attitudes growing up in the 80s and 90s you know and it was all just yeah. seen as good clean fun and you know yeah and it, it upsets me that you have to live with that all the time when it's you know well now i do yeah and you know i understand because you know from a distance i'd see hostility by black people 
against white people and I'd be like and I wouldn't understand it but the longer I spent here I'm not condoning it but I now get it I understand you're going to feel that way if you've had that your whole life you're going to be aggressive yeah yeah why wouldn't they why wouldn't they feel that way yeah so okay so I, I, you know me, I'm not afraid of any conversation and I, I wanted to, to like talk about a post that you made, um, a week or so ago that I'm still just like, it still just makes me kind of just sick to my stomach and it's just, so kind of just lay out, what, yeah, yeah, lay out what happened. Yeah. That's the best okay. thing is to just, just explain in, you know feel free to use whatever words you want okay. to describe exactly what the situation was because it was so like stereotypical, prototypical, whatever you want to call it. It just so perfectly embodied so much of the stuff that we're talking about. Right. So basically what happened, there was um, someone had posted on a British modeling pay on FX modeling club. They had posted a picture of a figure that they were painting currently, and it was a figure of Wing Commander Guy Gibson, Victoria Cross, the hero of the um, the Dambusters raid, and it was a pic- it was a figure of him and his black Labrador. His black Labrador had the N name, the N word as his name. Um, And people immediately started bringing that up. They stopped talking about this guy's painting and his modeling and only started talking about the fact that you can't say anything these days. Why are they canceling the name? Why are they changing it to trigger in the, in the movie or Peter Jackson's not even going to refer to the dog. Can you see the cat? I'm trying not to, I'm trying not to laugh. Jesus Christ, he's a genius. Because this is serious. Know, yeah, Martin's, Martin's cat is on the cabinet behind. Let's have a little break the and then pick up the story again, so I can edit it without us laughing. No, no, the, no. This is real, man. This is good shit. Yeah, go with the flow, man. Yeah, Simba. good looking cat, by the way. Enormous, he is, he genius, is. and he knows it. So anyway, so so on this page, um, people had stopped talking about his artwork, and they had started talking about the dog's name and saying how it was awful that you couldn't say things like this anymore. And why are they, these woke liberals are canceling everything and they're going to cancel Guy Gibson and blah, blah, blah. And, um, erasing history. I just had to go on there and say something. Yes. Erasing history. So I had to go on there because, you know, you said about black modelers. I know, I think three or four black modelers, that's all. And that's two of them are in the UK and two of them are here. I don't know any others. And I didn't know whether they were on that page or not. So I took it on myself to say something and to explain to them that using a a word that was offensive to a large section of the community was wrong. And the dog's name has no relevance to the mission. It's not like he flew one of the planes. As far as I knew, the dog wasn't on the raid, you know. So, um, and I, you know, I was trying to say to them, well, I'll I'll just read you briefly what I said. 
I said, as one of the few black modelers on any of these pages, I'm disappointed but not entirely surprised at many of the comments on this thread. To be so dismissive of the fact that your name is so offensive to a group of your fellow human beings shows me how far we still have to come. Showing civility and consideration to a group that has been oppressed and marginalized for centuries is not being woke. It's called being a decent person. I'm a Brit living in the US where I had to wake up, where I had a wake up call when it came to racism. Having grown up in London in the 60s and 70s, I experienced very little racism by comparison to what I experience here on an almost daily basis. I've had people tell me to my face that they don't want anything that I've touched. I've had people look at my supervisor and say, is this some kind of joke when I've stepped forward? I'm disappointed to see the contents of this thread, but especially on a mostly British page. Really well done. Yeah, very well put. And that's, and that's what I said and left it at that. Um, and of course, they come back with all the usual things of, well, why is it okay for black people to use the word and then and we can't? And I tried to explain, well, it's like a, it's like a reclaiming of the word. It's like taking the power out of it. And, you know, here's an example. How about the LGBTQ community and the word queer? They use it as a self-descriptive word. It's no longer an offensive term because they've reclaimed the word. Well, it's They're trying this is to get complex them to understand stuff. That. Yeah, this is this is, is complex, complex stuff, and, and 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 you know you you know it seemed like that one guy who asked that, you know, when I read that comment at first, I was like, come on, seriously, bro, or you know, because people will ask that disingenuously, like, well, why is it okay? For mm. it? You know, they're trying to make a point, but I felt like yeah. after I read the guy's, you know, his subsequent comments, that maybe he just legitimately didn't understand. And I think that maybe there are, you know, that there are folks out there like that. And so mm. I had hoped, I had hoped to get into this because it, it, you know, I mean, we live in complicated times and sometimes it can be difficult to sort stuff out, but this is not complicated. Thank you. Yeah. I was like, where it, are you going? Yeah. This, this is not, not this, this is, is not, not hard. complicated. This is not complicated <laughs> at all, but I think that it's still worth explaining. I mean, what it comes down to is, and, and, and feel free to tell me if I'm completely wrong about this, but to me, it's all about the direction you're punching. If, if me and Chris and Tracy are hanging out and I'm like, you know, come on, honky, what's up with that shit, right? All three of us are white guys. That's a sideways punch, right? Or if, you know, let's say that Peter Usher posts a diorama and I'm like, yeah, seriously, you really could have done a lot better with the pose on that figure. Come on, are you, you know, are you a beginner? I'm punching up. It's it's kind of the comedy of the, of the absurd. Like everybody knows yeah. Peter Usher is a badass and he needs no instruction from me. Like I can kind of get away with that, yeah. but you can't punch down. No, you cannot punch down, and well, you can't punch down and say you didn't, which is what well, definitely, all the time. definitely, say, What's definitely, the problem? and that kind of crap. Yeah, but well, even know, but, you know, the, but the thing that that really irritates me is when people say you can't say anything these days. You can't say anything. Yeah, my point to them yeah. is. 
Maybe you shouldn't have ever been saying it in the first place. Exactly. Right. It was never right. You could say pretty much anything, but if you say something that yeah. uh, uh, makes you sound like an arsehole, people are going to call you an arsehole these days. You know what you can uh, say? You can be complimentary and you can be polite. Like, yeah. there's a ton yeah. of things you can say. And, yeah. Absolutely. You Absolutely. just can't say the thing that you really want to say. And, and yeah, it, there's it just some places not, you shouldn't go. Yeah, and just being a decent person and doing the right thing, you're immediately labeled as woke. But to recognize why, I think, I think that's that's the point that I'm trying to get to is that some of these people just need to get to the point where they understand why. I mean, you. This is not complicated. You come from a group of people that have gotten a shit deal historically for a long time there's no wiggle room there mm. and people just have to understand that and get and get next to it there's not there's no equivocation about it and I'm in danger of going on a rant here, and, and I'm not the person who should be ranting. Yeah, I was right going to say you need to let Martin talk. <laughs> yeah, but but I but but look, I I just people I, I I feel like people just don't really get real about this stuff, and white people are just fucking wrong sometimes because they just don't get it, and I think if we don't really talk for real, that a lot of people mm -hmm. never will. Then it doesn't. It's not going to change. I, you know, the same token, we don't use derogatory terms talking about Jewish people, mm. Asian people, Indian people publicly, and think it's okay. So why should it well, be okay now? Well, it's not, and some people do. And 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 again, the point that I'm trying to make to go back to that guy who was like, "Well, why is it okay for those folks? Those people can say that to each other." Like we can call each yeah. other nerds, like as as fellow scale modelers, we can call each other nerds. We can call each other dorks. That's okay. But let somebody outside the scale model community do that. And now they're trying to punch down. Now it's derogatory. Yeah. It's a different thing as opposed to a term of solidarity. That's that's what yeah. I was looking for. It's yeah. a term of solidarity. No, I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's that's a good way to to uh, to get it across. That's good. Yeah, it is good. Well, that's good because I didn't know if I was going to get through that without totally fucking it up. <laughs> <laughs> you got there in the end. <laughs> well, it's hard. I mean, look, it's hard to talk about this stuff. It's hard. Yeah. To, it's hard to have a conversation about it with people who don't want to hear it yeah. or who it, it's. It's hard to to have a conversation that ends with any kind of meaningful thought being taken away from it, and and I think that's a good way to put it. Solidarity is like, you know, there every group of whether it's interest or racial or or uh, coworkers, like there's solidarity within those groups, and those people interact in ways that are are theirs to to interact. You know, like. Your coworkers, like for me, whenever, you know, if I walk into a different restaurant, I can see how that unit of people works together. I can't join that unit and just be like, yeah. hey, I work in a yeah, restaurant yeah. too. They'd be like, well, that's, that's kind of cool, but you're also a cool. dork. Yeah. Go away. Cool, cool story, bro. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah cool. so, <laughs> read the room. Yeah. So again, it's like the, the solidarity is maybe a good way to start getting people to 
understand why you can't say that word. Like just on the most mm. basic level, like it, it, it's a community, it's a term of solidarity with a group that you aren't part of and you're not going to be able to join. And you're yeah. never going to get it truly. You're never going to really understand it. Right. And, and you know, it's for these guys can't really exper- experience the same thing because I was thinking about it. There isn't as offensive a word to describe and to apply to white people. There isn't. No, no there's not. So well, they're never going to be called something that they're immediately going to get their back up and make them upset. Because there is no word. Whatever word it is has never been associated with the same history, mm-hmm. with the same persecution yeah. and the same... Exactly. That's what uh, I was going to say. White people and, yeah. have... Yeah, in the, at least yeah. in the Western world, white people have never been in that position. No. no. I don't... I just think it would be a lot better if people just do No, this is going to sound really like kumbaya. Can't we all get we're all just bloody modelers. <laughs> I mean, that's one group we're in. Why can't, why isn't that enough? You know, but I want to be judged by what I build by your work. and paint, yeah. not by how I look. Right. Why should I be? Well, it's like me. I don't, you know, if people bring up the fact that I'm seriously physically disabled okay cool but i don't lead with that i don't want to be identified as oh the disabled guy who can barely move his lobster hands that's an aside for yeah. me i just want to be known as a, yeah. as a good model maker and a good person yeah well there's yeah, yeah there uh, you know like we we talked about and you know at least chris and i on occasion listen to the um to the build sideways podcast and i listen to it too okay yeah brian might be listening pretend we all listen to it (laughs) (laughs) it's it's like the guys that build sideways podcast i mean there's there are voices there on that podcast that aren't heard in other podcasts and there's there's there are people who are into the hobby that you know the large the large portion of people like you would never expect a, a female modeler at a modeling show. You'd never expect a Hispanic person or any person of color. And they're treated differently. You know, mm. like if you're going to discriminate, discriminate against bad models. And <laughs> if only people would. <laughs> I see some right shit on the internet. <laughs> yeah. And, and people still are, you know, the, the discrimination doesn't, go there where it should but it's i mean even like even with the thing that those guys normally deal with the gundam stuff that's it 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 even happens with that like there was a post in some group the other day about a guy who went into a hobby shop and he said that he was just really happy that it didn't have a lot of that stupid gundam and robot stuff Mm. and it's like (coughs) seriously come on you know, that's, if, uh, you're, if you're walking into a hobby shop, that's probably what's keeping it alive. Yeah, chances are. Exactly. You know, it's funny, and there is a parallel there with, with the skiing and snowboarding. It was the same thing when we started snowboarding. Skiers mm-hmm. would say that. Oh, I know. I came, and, yep, I and came to be from honest, the skiers, snowboarding, skiers world, so snowboarding has saved skiing. The, all the recent designs, change, changes in designs to skis that have increased the numbers of people partaking have come from snowboarding. So without us, it would have died. 
You know, and it can be the same thing with a with a store selling Gundam. I, Without that Gundam, they wouldn't keep the lights on. Yeah, I don't know how it was I mean, in the US in the eighties and nineties, but skiing was a rich person's hobby in the UK. Yeah, you know, snowboarding. Oh, very, however, uh, yeah. across the board, completely different yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, uh, and that hasn't even changed. Hmm. Unfortunately, um, the big corporations who are taking over skiing and they're buying up all the little resorts and they're pushing it into being a rich person sport again. I teach private lessons mostly. For a three-hour private lesson, $1,000. For a full day, it's twelve seventy. I'm just going to go and learn snowboarding. <laughs> <laughs> so the question I don't be- get all that. Just, just point that out. I don't get that. No. The question becomes, for $1,000 for three hours, it, are you... Are you so rich that you only expect to be a little bit better at the end of that? Because if I paid $3,000, or sorry, $1,000 for three hours, I would expect a miracle at the end. I'd expect to be in the next Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> we have to the ginger one out of the way. <laughs> what I think what it all comes down to is that human beings are just tribal as fuck. And, and, and we, yeah. for, for whatever reason, we just need to find a reason to make ourselves feel better than the people in the other tribe. And it's one of the most destructive things about the human condition. And, yeah. you know, I, I think that what's good about this conversation is that, you know, we can see that it runs all, it runs the gamut from silly stuff like, you know, well, there's another one of those guys that likes to overweather his model airplanes to the actual yeah. important stuff that you've had to deal with as a minority. And I think that, 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 you know, why we decided to tackle this is because for the same reason that we, you know, go off on all the other silly shit, the gatekeepers, because it's mm. all bad. It's all bad. Yeah. But, yeah. but some of it's more important and this really is. Yeah, I feel it's like we've... important to give. Yeah. Sorry, go on, Trace. It's Im... it's important to to give a voice to people of color in this hobby. I feel like you kind of sat there though while we told you about the problem with racism in the hobby. <laughs> <laughs> and isn't 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 that the isn't that the deal? Right? Is it isn't that the deal? Well, it's always the yeah. It's always the white. Isn't that the yeah. problem, though, isn't it? Because people saying to you, and I'm doing it right fucking now, saying to you, well, you, you shouldn't have a problem with it. It's just the name of a dog. You know, what? We'll, you know, we'll, we'll decide what racism is, not you. That's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Martin, is there anything else you want to say about it? Yeah, that's what I was getting to. Yeah. Um, it's got to a point now where um, I decided, you know, I used to hear about people being classes grumpy old men and I don't think that's the case because I'm there right now and I it's a case of you get to a point in your life when you're not prepared to put up with any more shit and you're going to say nope I don't like that and I'm going to tell you and I'm going to tell you why and I've reached that stage and whereas in the past I might have quietly ignored stuff that had gone on I don't do that anymore and I want to thank you guys for being willing to discuss this and difficult problem, difficult issues before that people don't want to talk about. You talked about how female modelers are treated. Um, just touched on subjects that 
you know, people would rather just sweep under the carpet and ignore. And I think it's very important, as you said, that we talk about these things, because if we don't talk about them, they don't go away. And it's, they are awkward conversations, but they're conversations that have to be had. Dave Goldfinch said something really important on the last, on the bench at the time of recording. Uh, and I think it's really important for all of us who aren't people of colour to say something when you see this shit, to not let it pass. Because as he said, yeah. the standard you walk past is the standard you accept. And unless every yeah. time we see it, we call it, then it's just, you know, yeah. people are going to think it's okay. And it's, and it's and they more important for, it. for you guys to call it yeah. than for me. Yeah. Because otherwise they're just going to say, and I've heard people say, oh, you just, you had to go and play the race card. Yeah. <laughs> and anyone listening, don't ever say that to my face because there will be consequences. Yeah. <laughs> just say. So, yeah, it has to come from people who look like you. And, and, yeah. it, and, it, and it does. And, I, you know, look, this, I'm going to, what I'm going to say is, is, sympathetic to white people who are trying to figure this out but don't mistake mm -hmm. that in any way shape or form for comparing it to the difficulties that you have to go through in actually dealing with it but i think we have to acknowledge it because i mean shit gets more confusing every day and mm -hmm. it's hard to know where to walk the line i mean yeah. you know because it's like you said, you know, the whole, the whole, there's always going to be that guy who's like, well, this is just a bunch of woke bullshit. And look, sometimes it is bullshit. Every social movement goes too far at some point or another. That's just, that's just, that's just what happens. And there's going to be mm -hmm. some silliness out there on the fringes. And so... You know, like I guarantee you that they that that we three are in danger of somebody identifying us as trying to be allies, as virtue signaling, as yeah. Yeah. You know, being an ally. Well, exactly. Yeah, but you. I'll but, take that. But yeah. right, okay, cool, and but you get but but hopefully you get my point that. Yeah. That I think a lot of people are trying to figure out how to navigate because, okay, over here on the one side, we clearly recognize that there are folks who have had a shit deal and who continue to get a shit deal. And we need to be better as a society. We need to figure out how to address those things. We need to talk to those things in, in, a, in a way that's not fearful. But on the other side, I've got people who are, I thought, on my own team who are telling me that I'm doing it wrong. Hmm. And, and it can be really hard and confusing and I get that that's tough for a lot of people but so what okay that's the least yeah. penalty that's the least yeah. penalty and, uh, and I would hope that other other black people other people of color will realize that someone is trying to do the right thing is trying to help and will probably need some guidance yeah and I give mean, them guidance yeah just just be a little, have a little grace for fuck's sake and recognize that we may not always get it right. And sometimes you mm. may have to say, yeah, well, okay, good intent, bad execution. And also though, don't I, be afraid of saying something for fear of getting it wrong. I'm sure people will be kind to you. That's Just what I'm saying. Try and be a decent mm. person and it'll all come good. Yeah. 
genuine intent yeah. will always come across as genuine intent. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if, and if you if you sidestep, cross step, overstep something, if you're being genuine, then somebody will guide you on how to do it better the next time. They'll they'll appreciate the the effort and they'll help you to do it more correctly the next time. Yeah. Right? It, it, it's like someone saying, I feel really bad what's what's happening to colored people. And I'm Whoa. so let's go. Okay, I I see your heart's in the right place, but that's not how we address ourselves. But that's the kind of thing <laughs> that I'm talking about. You have to be a little patient. And I get and yeah, and, I, and that's and that's I mean it gets down to those details because I guarantee yeah. you that, that that guy may be like, What? What'd I say? why is that wrong? It's, you know, I, I experience the same thing when flying with some people, they want to be known by specific pronouns. You know? My own daughter has asked to be known by certain pronouns, and it it can be hard to to get used to doing that. But it's the same thing, and I and I appreciate when someone is making an effort, and I'm not going to punish them for it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's somebody with pronouns is something that I'm I deal with as well, and I you know I always make the effort, and if I if I do something wrong, I immediately am like. I'm really sorry. That's just, I'm, I'm trying yeah, to get used it's to not this. Deliberate. You're trying. Yeah. And yeah. nobody's ever been upset by somebody trying. Unless it's disingenuous. Let's face it. The yeah. problem here are the people that don't give a fuck and make a virtue out of not giving a fuck. Yeah. And also, yeah. I'd just like to point out when you say, people say uh, your virtue signaling, that in itself is signaling a virtue. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hot meat kettle. Yeah. So much of the problem comes with it just being the fucking internet. I mean, you know, little tiny words on little tiny screens are just such a terrible medium for conveying mm. tone yeah. and intent. It's also a good way to just say whatever you want with no consequences. Yeah, it's a cop. Well, that can be a cop out as well. There are consequences. Sure. They just don't like the consequences. <laughs> yeah. They're not I real just... life consequences. No, no, they're not. Well, occasionally it, it, people have lost their jobs over it. it well, they should. Yeah. yeah, they should. They should. Yeah, yeah. You don't wake up with a cross burning in your front yard because of it. No. Like, there's no real life consequences to being able to, like, rattle off a list of fucking pejoratives that everybody on the internet you're just like sitting around in your sweat stained underwear in your mom's basement or turned down for a job <laughs> even though you might never be told why or have been looked up and down and walked away from a model show yeah well part of the part of the reason that we wanted to do this was because social media is the reality that a lot of us deal with and it I mean, sometimes it takes a lot of energy to, to figure out, okay, how am I going to type this out? How am I going to explain this shit when really all you want to say is you're a fucking idiot. Just shut the fuck up. Then say it. A Just and I do. That. Like, in, that's what I say in real life. I mean, you know, right. You know, you know me. I will say that. But that's not always going to work out well. It's not always going to serve the larger purpose. And what I just, I, I really... Part of the reason why I was hoping for this conversation, Martin, was because I had so much respect for the fact that you took the time and you spelled it out and you had far more patience than I would have. And I just wanted to say again, mad respect, man. Thank you. I And I want to say thank you too to all the people who supported me when that was going on, yeah. which was reassuring. 
Because it was mostly, yeah, it was. It was, it was good to, to see. Something. Yeah, it was and good to see. On SMCG, um, there's 130 comments on there. I mean, it was great. And people who I, you know, you don't know what situation people are in. Shane Doak, you mentioned, he talked about his daughter mm-hmm, being at the yeah. receiving end of, of racism and prejudice. Um, Fanch Lubin, he sent me a photo of his blended family with yeah. four hands linked in a circle. It's beautiful. Yeah. You know, uh, you don't know what's going on in other people's lives or what their family makeup is. or So it was really reassuring. And, and now on my model page, I do have every now and then pictures so people know what I look like. And Good. I actually posted a picture of myself and my wife. I was, had a break from modeling, so I had a picture of the two of us there. If people don't like it, they know yeah. where the door is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's good to see that people will 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 step up to the plate. I mean, you know, come to your defense, so to speak. I don't know if that's the best way to put it. But yeah. I asked I asked you to, to cross-post that in SMCG for very specific reasons. Because yeah. while I was hoping to see what we saw, which was a lot of people who were positive and, and, and doing the right thing. Yeah. I was just waiting for somebody to step out of line. <laughs> because dad needs, you know, well, I, I mean, yeah. I would, and no, I would not, we would not have swung the band. I mean, we, we try to give people plenty of rope to hang themselves. Right. <laughs> Unfortunately yeah. expression. Yeah. And, and see, and, and, and I, I mean, you know, we're laughing, but, but, that's part of why it can be so confusing and scary sometimes. Cause even as those words were coming out of my mouth, I was thinking, man, what, you know, and, and it can be hard to like monitor yourself constantly, especially if you're a guy like me who just runs off at the fucking mouth all the time, mm-hmm. like to really know if you're a, if you just said something that's really bad and you have to be open to having it explained to you. Well, yeah. Yeah. what you just did is you said something, and in the act of saying something, you became conscious of how somebody else heard it and yes. what it might mean to them. Yes. And that's, if you can that's... get to that point, that's a huge step, man. If you can think about the things that are coming out of your mouth and how they, how they sound and how they, what emotions they bring up for other people, then you're starting to get it, man. Like, consider other people consider what they've been through and and you know and it, there are some unfortunate sayings that that have really uh some awful racial background to them and well you did it once what was the episode where you said something about all back of the bus and i i didn't even think about that like i, I was did, just like, i did not say back of the bus Somebody said back of the bus. I think it was you. I think it was you. Maybe it was. Maybe it was. But but you know what? You're right. Now that I'm thinking back on that episode, it was me. And Martin was the one who... Martin was the one that brought it up. It's a big circle. I didn't, you know, I didn't even, like it never even occurred to me. Yeah. There are innocuous phrases that people don't realize what their roots are. Right. And... And that was a, that was a perfect example. You had no idea what that related to. Yeah, and I'm just, sometimes yeah. I'm on an aircraft and people are boarding and they're like, I'm like, oh, what seat do you have? And they go, I'm 38 on back of the bus. I'm like, mm, should I tell them? Should I say anything? I'll let it go. <laughs> but 
Yeah. 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 Uh, I'll give you the worst example I came across. I hadn't been over here very long in the States and I was working at the ski resort and we were working one summer and we were lifting this giant concrete slab, a whole bunch of us together. We moved it, put it down. And this Southern guy looked up and said, damn, I'm sweating like a N whore in church. Wow. Yeah, and that's... everybody went quiet and stepped back, like to give me swinging room. <laughs> like, <laughs> kill him. did he? Not and even... I just said a word with him. I just said, "Look, that's not something that you should be saying." And I explained why, and he's like, "Oh, well, it's just, it's just a phrase." I went, "No, no, <laughs> you're missing the point here." Yeah, but it's not. It's not. You, you can equivocate the exact same sentiment by leaving one word out of that. Yeah. It wouldn't have decreased yeah, it but, any. But then the sex workers are going to be mad at you too. <laughs> yeah, I'll sweat like I'll a just... pig who's heard bacon. What's wrong with that one? There you go. <laughs> I mean, it's it's like it's like That's the back of the. It's like the back. <laughs> I see what you did there. It's like the back of the bus thing. I was like, well, shit. I've been saying that my whole life. I mean, what is wrong with that? And and now I have to think of something different. And then my next thought was, well. And? What a, what an imposition! Wow, really? What a tough deal you got in life. And yeah. it, it it it. I mean, it, it's if there's one thing I have learned with my propensity for just barfing shit out of my out of my mouth, <laughs> is that it never is a bad thing to stop and consider a different way to say something. And yeah. it, you know, if you can if you can make that a part of your life, then that's all to the good. And thank you, Martin, for being graceful about pointing it out, because not everybody could pull that off either, because there's a wrong way to do that part of it as well. So, you know, I would have taken the Tracy route. (laughs) (laughs) So what's next for you, Martin? Um, What's next? I'm working through a few different builds. I've got, like I said, my head is absolutely full of ideas and I don't have a big stash. I have probably 30, 35 kits, but I have plans for all of them. And I'm constantly thinking of new ideas. And weirdly, the place that that happens usually is the shower. It's, that's where the ideas <laughs> kind of germinate. Tradition. It's all and I grab the, the waterproof phone and I write them down. But um, in terms of what's next for me, just more dioramas. I want to get better. I want to paint like Calvin Tan. I want to... You know, I just want to improve and I'm having so much fun doing it. Um, The biggest issue I have is making space. I've got to get rid of some of my dioramas. Mm. The two. They take up a lot of room, don't they? Dioramas. They do. And I've got to start giving them away, selling them. I can't send them anywhere. Um, Yeah, I'm not sure what I'm going to do about that. Deliver them on your flights. Yes, that's crossed my mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> Is there a local hobby but, uh, shop? Yeah, they they have a bit of room, and I'm they've actually asked me to build to paint something. They gave me this uh, oh LVT. water buffalo. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was just plain white, so they asked me to paint and weather it and give it to them. So maybe in return, I'm going to ask if can I leave a few things here. 
Because they've done that with people's um, 172nd scale aircraft. They've had boxes of them there for sale. So maybe maybe that's a route. Do they have a display area? Yeah, just say again. Do they have a display area in the hobby shop? Um, they've got glass cabinets in one of them, that, but they're pretty full. Yeah. But um, yeah, I can only ask. I can only say no. I tell you, if you want to get kids into a hobby shop, put a diorama in the window. Yeah. They just, uh, you I know, mean, nothing pulls them in like that. I can uh, remember the first diorama I ever saw in a hobby shop window was the the German half track and all the guys jumping out and, and the one guy uh, like, with his arm like in mid jump. And I yeah. just thought that was like, oh, just so dynamic. Tell me a hand I just thought that was cool. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, straight yes. out of the box, figure <laughs> straight out of the box. But I couldn't do that, you know. Yeah. Um, and looking back on it, I'm sure the, you know, if I saw it now, I'd be like, well, the groundwork maybe not that great or whatever. But you yeah. know, as a kid, I at the time it yeah. was, I couldn't stop looking at it. You know, it was one of my favorite things to do is ride my bike over there and just sit outside the window and look at all that stuff. Yeah. I want to see you do more sci-fi stuff. I mean, I thought the I thought the Viper was cool. Um, have you done any? Yeah, machining, I, have you done any machining, Krieger? I have. I actually just did. If you have a look on my page, I just did one for a, a group build, and it was uh, is a diorama scene, and it's uh, see again a story. There's a a suit that's opened up. The guy is sitting there just chilling for a bit, having a drink by the side of some water, and in the background, just behind some wreckage, is one of the full-on robots that's pointing its gun arm at its head that's right i did um, see that i i I lose track of all all the stuff i see but yeah okay but it's titled he never saw it coming (laughs) we never heard it coming so his last moments but yeah i've done a i've done a little bit of mak i want to do some more um this dragon may be the the um the portal to more but it's been it's been good fun. I've actually enjoyed doing it. So, well, I can certainly yeah, highly good. recommend the Bandai Star Wars stuff. I do. I mean, I grew up with Star Wars, and I'm a Star Wars freak. I can't believe I haven't made any yet. They're so good. They're I've so got to good. do that. You could. You. I just finished the A Wing, and I'm sure people are tired of hearing me talk about it. But I swear to God, you could put that together in one night in your room. And then all you yeah. do is paint it. They sound perfect for hotels. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And a little more freedom because, you know, with all the spinoffs and everything, you it's, can, you can yeah. put yours in a times. Well, I mean, mine is basically uh, Ahsoka Tano's, uh, a lot of the colors from Ahsoka yeah. Tano. Right. And I, I, I definitely will do some more. Um, and I've, I've got a few things in mind with the sci-fi. I'll definitely do some. I just did a, a small boat as well. I hadn't done any boats before. It was one of those um, seal um, insertion craft from Vietnam um, with some wounded soldiers just getting in it to get to get out, to get extracted. That was pretty recent. That was another one that was built at a hotel. Well, Martin, this has been good fun. Um, I think that we've covered a lot of ground. We've... Yeah gone all the way from model making to social justice (laughs) i think it's i think it's been good and and i just want to say thanks again to you for being willing to come on and spend the time and and get real man you know get into some tough stuff um uh, you know so so thank you for that um thank you for asking i'm sure that we'll have you back and 
you know, who knows? Maybe we'll cover yeah. all the same stuff. Or Actually, I'd really love to get you back in a few months and talk about, you know, how your work's progressed since then. I'll put links to your Facebook uh, MD Scale models and to Instagram in the show notes. Anywhere else people should go to have a look at your work? Um, the, YouTube. the YouTube stuff. Yep. There's some videos. Because cool. one of my other jobs is doing voiceovers. So I voice over some some stuff there and I kind of make it into stories. Well, so. You do voiceovers. Yeah, how did, how did that? Come on. This string <laughs> okay, bow's well, got that, too many I'm, strings. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you. He's had, he's had a very scenic career path. Well, I'm old, so I've done a lot of shit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Mark. Thank you so much. Yes, All thank right. you very Take much. Okay, guys. All right. So that was our interview with Martin Drayton. We got into a hell of a lot of stuff there, guys. What did you think? It was great. Um, Martin is such an enthusiastic member of the hobby and he's, you know, a lot like Sam Dwyer, he just works so fast, man. I feel like every time I turn around, there's a new piece from him up. Um, and each piece is better than the last. I love how he pushes himself. I, I love the fact that he's only been doing this for a couple of years and he is, he's got the pedal to the metal, man. He's, he's got goals that he's going after and it, it was great. In, in addition to, you know, just his modeling. He's a he's a delightful guy to talk to, and I'm really glad that we had a chance to to talk to him about his work, but also to be able to talk to him about um, sort of the discrimination and and things that he he's experienced in the hobby and in both of his hobbies. In um, I guess instruct ski, um, snowboard instru instruction is was a job as well as a hobby. Um, but it's really, really good to, to have that conversation topic out in the open and, and being discussed because I, I think it only can improve um, improve that situation. You know, I think it, it can only lead to discussions that that broaden people's perspective and hopefully allow this hobby to become more accepting of everyone uh, that wants to be involved in it. I, I hope so. I, I hope that, you know, in spite of my own fumbling, because I honestly don't feel like I did a good job with that. I, I was nervous going in because I knew it was a complicated topic. Um, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm proud of us for keeping it real. Martin was incredibly gracious and graceful and, and as charming as I knew he would be. But, it, you know, it was – there were moments there where it felt awkward. It's a tough conversation on some of those topics, and I think that those are important conversations, and I'm glad we did it, and I hope that the, that, that all comes through. I You know, I wish I had done better, honestly. You know, I mean, he's come further than anyone else I know in the hobby in such a short time, and he's voracious. Yeah. All the, the work he puts into it, the enthusiasm he has for it, the scope and also he's done we talked about composition and, and storytelling in this show he's a natural for that he's very early on he's already grasping sort of very um important concepts about uh layout and about dead space and about all the other things you need to think of in a diorama in a way that a lot of people when they're enthusiastic they just chuck stuff on a board 
and you know it looks a bit of a mess the story's unfocused but his is always really good really well put together and the latest one with the dragon with the two guys climbing up to uh to steal the egg fantastic yeah it is super cool it's like a set out of a movie but yeah yeah, i mean i i don't think we're going to be uh getting in trouble for letting the cat out of the bag but he's been asked to present a seminar at the nationals on on storytelling and dioramas and i think that's a great choice says it all yeah Yeah, absolutely and he'll do great i mean he's a natural teacher i think and Look, honestly, I mean, he, he might be a little nervous about it, but I think if he can handle a plane full of irate passengers as a, in his day job as a flight attendant, he can definitely handle a seminar at an IPMS convention. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Staring at a sea of people who are there to, to hear what you have to say is not probably what you get as a flight attendant. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He needs to put tray back, uh, what they call the, the seat back cards in for the emergency landing, because then everyone will just be looking at them instead of him. <laughs> you know what he should books. do? He should pre-record the entire seminar and then just stand up there <laughs> and like, with, with props. And just hand <laughs> signals. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, hilarious. Someone holding up a paintbrush and a thing, <laughs> like, like, showing everyone this is how you do it. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Uh, I'm sure he's never heard jokes like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's over there. If he's listening, he's over there rolling his eyes right now. He's like, yeah, real original dudes. <laughs> also, it, it's in the interview, but not, not particularly. We, we're all laughing at one point where it gets very, very serious. Just to explain, behind him was a kitchen counter and some cabinets over it, and his cat was stood on the counter with its paws, opening the doors of the cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> Look, obviously looking for food, and it was pretty, pretty amazing to quite distracting and, and <laughs> such <laughs> comic this. timing. Yeah, 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 perfect timing. So, yeah, thank you, Martin, for coming on. We definitely want to get him back sometime. But Will, you're in charge next time. What, what have we got? I mean, I, I don't know if I should ever be in charge of anything, but uh, I do have a guest. <laughs> All of Facebook, maybe? Uh, I have a guest coming uh, that I, we've been working on for a while that I am excited about that I think is going to be a lot of fun. I went down to Austin at the beginning of April for a James Rice uh, figure painting workshop. And you guys know James because he was a guest here last year. And that was super cool. But a big part of that workshop was uh, the folks, uh, Danielle and Rudy, over at Lionheart Hobby, which is a new brick and mortar thing. I say new, but they're about a year into it. Um, Anyway, uh, they were a big part of organizing and hosting the workshop. And they were were fantastic. And um, I took the time to do an interview. Uh, a little bit of an interview with them there. Um, and I'm not sure did we, if we ever ran that. Now I'm having a moment of nope. panic. No, we didn't. We, First I've heard of it. And that's my bad because <laughs> I completely 100% forgot and I suck. But we're going to make up for it by having them on as real live guests um, here uh, on the next episode. We're going to spend some time with them and talk about the hobby and about being retailers in the hobby. And I think everybody's going to find them to be informative and, and charming and it's going to be good fun. I'm really interested. I follow them on Facebook for a while and um, they put so much effort and energy into everything they do to making it 
you know a, a more lively exciting version of the traditional hobby stores. They really so do. Yeah. Really interested to talk to them about how they do that and about the future of hobby stores and how they see it and and that side of the hobby. Yeah. I yeah, again like we 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 enjoy talking to kit manufacturers to get an insight into that side of the hobby. Mm-hmm. As somebody who owns a business, I would like I'm very much looking forward to having a conversation with them about the business end of running a hobby shop because I don't think it's easy. I don't think it's easy at all, and I think it's a lot a of people business. who yeah. who have the impression that it is very easy are going to be quite shocked. Most people that start a hobby shop, <laughs> they think, oh, I like models, I'll start a hobby shop. It's hard. You, you need to really be innovative if it's going to work. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're talking about an absolute ton of money. You know, people complain about the cost of kits. The mm. cost of kits these days, burp, 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 when I was a kid, but I meant shit sets. <laughs> but imagine, you know, having to consistently keep 300 to 400 on the shelves. Like that's that's a lot of monetary outlay. And as soon as you sell whatever yeah. what you sold, you probably need to buy it again. So yeah. And there's always a percentage of it that just sits there yeah. forever. That just doesn't take right. off. And so, you know, people are like, well, you know, I bought that kit. They should, you know, they got my money for that. Well, chances are they turned around and took your money and spent a portion of it buying that kit again to put on the shelf again. So in fact, they made a very small amount of money. So anyway, I I think from a business perspective, it's going to be a very interesting conversation. I think so. I hope you've enjoyed the show. We don't get many letters uh, or emails, so please do write to us at sprucuttersunion at gmail.com. We want to hear from you, particularly if you've got burrs or if you've got feedback on the interviews or if we talk a bunch of shit and you want to ask me talk shit. But bear in mind, we probably will read it out and mock you. All our Patreons yes, as well. Yes, absolutely. Thanks to the Patreons. Thanks to the people who write in. If you want to write in and, and if you have a topic that you'd like to hear us discuss, that'd be that'd be cool too. Uh, I'm not guaranteeing we're going to talk about it, but it, it's nice to – it probably would be nice to to hear what people want us to cover. Absolutely. All right. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening. Adios. Ciao. Beaches. Beaches. All the beaches have to go. (laughs) 